you talk about lots of, you know, eating bad foods uh, can be one way to kind of contaminate the body on uh, immune system on uh, lots of other toxins uh, in the environment uh, and how this can Im- impact uh, sperm count for males. Uh, this is on page 90. Uh, you write <clears throat> for decades, men's sperm counts have been falling in parts of the developed world. They have declined by about 60% over the past 40 years. At this point, there are few human studies, but like those taking place in laboratories, the ones that exist are producing alarming results. Parabens, chemicals widely used in products such as toilet soap, shampoo, and makeup have been associated with DNA damage to male sperm. A Polish study published in 2017 found that high concentrations of parabens in male urine samples were linked with changes to sperm robustness that contributed to male infertility. In 2017, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof extrapolated from current data on lower sperm counts to propose that if present trends continue by 2060 a majority of the men living in Europe and North America might be infertile yikes Dr. Welsing moment for sure do you see this being something that people like when when people read this part of your book like are they stunned do people know about this like how do they respond to this section well, it's it's it, it's surprising. Uh, people don't don't think about the effects of this on, say, pregnancy. But it the low sperm counts and so on, and the um, risk of male infertility is becoming more and more of an issue. And I think people are becoming uh, aware of it. Um, that we really need to clean up our environment. A lot of these, the problems do stem from those products that um, indoctrine uh, disruptors, and a lot of those are found in um, personal care products. So, um, you know, I've actually started to make a lot of my own kind of skincare stuff and so on, uh, just using natural organic oils and, and essential oils um, because I find that I was reacting to a lot of the um, chemicals that are in a lot of these, most of these products. So, Intelligent and current folks, I encourage folks to do that as often as they can, not to be so reliant. What do you What do you think the difference is in terms of why in North America and these European countries they're having these fertility problems as opposed to other places on the planet? Well, it's because we live in a. I mean, there are so many toxins uh, in our our in our environment. Uh, and, you know, the, the plastic water bottles, for one. Um, I mean, I think we're, in the last couple of years, I've seen that, that we're using fewer and fewer of them, but for many years, people just, people didn't give it a second thought. Uh, and, and we really know that those do have an effect on, um, 
on uh, on all of us. And um, you know, when when we come when we come back to men and to sperm, uh, we are seeing more and more effects on pregnancy. Uh, and I think this is going to our pregnancy outcomes, and I think this is going to become more and more of an issue. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, November 11, 2021. So I have been told so-called Veterans Day. If that means anything to anyone, I know we have a number of folks, uh, cows, listeners, even participants uh, who served in the uh, armed services. If you're celebrating right on, replace white supremacy with justice. That said, uh, our book or our new book, we finished up Shaft last week. Today we are kicking off Shauna Swan, Ph.D. She's a white woman suspected racist. Her book, Count Down, two words, uh, the full title, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Very long full title for the book, Count Down. Now, this just came out not that long ago. Uh, we played uh, an audio segment, I believe the early part of the year like the springtime talking about this book I was surprised way back then because this book was getting a lot of publicity they were playing it on the BBC and uh, US media outlets uh, and this is in the middle of the Rona and everything else that was happening I said early part of the year so they were still talking about January 6 and lots of other important topics in the world fertility rates and specifically fertility rates for white people then you combine that with the U.S. Census report from earlier this year uh, where they were talking about uh, decreased populations or at least decreased percentages of the population for people classified as white. All of that anxiety mixed in together exactly and I mean precisely what Dr. Frances Cress Welsing discussed in her theory of white genetic annihilation. I am certain if she were with us. She would want to check out this book, especially because it's got so much attention. So we will keep Dr. Welsing's thoughts with us as we read the audio segment that we heard at the beginning. That was Judith Finlayson. She was also with us right at the beginning of the year, at the end of March. Uh, that passage from her book talking about exactly what this text is about fertility rates dropping she was talking about specifically for white people in Europe and North America and relating it to food but I'm sure a lot of different areas will be covered in this text we will go ahead and get started this is Shauna Swan PhD count down context of white supremacy audio segment number one again white genetic annihilation Simon & Schuster Audio presents Countdown How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race by Shauna Swan, Ph.D. with Stacy Colino Read by Cynthia Farrell 
Prologue It's hardly a newsflash that human beings often take things for granted. Fertility is no exception, unless people discover they have a problem in this area. As with having access to basic necessities and certain fundamental freedoms, many people take it as a given that they'll be able to have babies when the time is right and help perpetuate the species. All of these assumptions reside under the notion that we don't always appreciate what we've got till it's gone, as folk singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell suggested in her hit song Big Yellow Taxi. It's difficult enough for a man or a woman, when experiencing reproductive disorders or fertility troubles, to accept that he or she may not be able to have children. Now there's an even greater challenge, as human beings collectively are forced to contend with some dismaying biological realities. In Western countries, sperm counts and men's testosterone levels have declined dramatically over the last four decades, as my own research and that of others has found. Also, increasing numbers of girls are experiencing early puberty, and grown women are losing good quality eggs at younger ages than expected. They're also suffering more miscarriages. It's no longer business as usual when it comes to human reproduction. Other species are suffering, too. There's been a rise of abnormal genitals in wildlife, including unusually small penises in alligators, panthers, and mink, as well as an increase in fish, frogs, birds, and snapping turtles that have both male and female gonads, or ambiguous genitalia. At first glance, these issues may seem like bizarre anomalies or cruel tricks from Mother Nature, but they're all signs that something very wrong is happening in our midst. Exactly what that culprit is continues to be hotly debated, but evidence pointing to likely suspects is mounting on a regular basis. This much is clear. The problem isn't that something is inherently wrong with the human body as it has evolved over time. It's that chemicals in our environment and unhealthy lifestyle practices in our modern world are disrupting our hormonal balance, causing varying degrees of reproductive havoc that can foil fertility and lead to long-term health problems even after one has left the reproductive years. Similar effects are occurring among other species, adding up to widespread reproductive shock. Simply put, we're living in an age of reproductive reckoning that is having reverberating effects across the planet. If these alarming trends continue unabated, it's difficult to predict what the world will look like in a hundred years. What does this dramatic decline in sperm count pretend if it stays on its current trajectory? Does it signal the beginning of the end of the human race? Or that we're on the brink of extinction? Does the environmental emasculation of wildlife suggest that the Earth really is becoming much less habitable? Are we on the verge of experiencing a global existential crisis? These are good questions, and we don't have clear answers to them, at least not yet. But pieces of the puzzle are being put together, as you'll see in the chapters that follow. You'll learn more about the breadth of these scary declines in sperm counts and other aspects of reproductive function, as well as the factors that are likely to blame for these unfortunate effects in human beings and other species, based on scientific research. 
The following is clear. The current state of reproductive affairs can't continue much longer without threatening human survival. Current levels of sperm counts and concentrations and decreased fertility are already posing serious threats to Western populations on both ends of the human lifespan. Infertility is linked to an increased risk of certain diseases and earlier death in both men and women, while leading to a decrease in the number of children born over time. Obviously, this isn't a healthy scenario for Homo sapiens, or for other threatened or endangered species. Already, some countries with problematic age distributions are grappling with shrinking populations, with increasing numbers of older people being supported by fewer younger people. It's a fairly bleak picture, I admit, but it's an important one to be aware of because, unless we take steps to reverse these harmful influences, the planet's species are in grave danger. Right now, the important measures that might improve the situation aren't happening. The 2017 publication of my meta-analysis on sperm count decline in Western countries put this issue on the radar screen, grabbing headlines and television coverage around the world. But the findings haven't translated into committees being formed, environmental policies being changed, safer chemicals being manufactured, or other concerted efforts being made to address the suspected causes or protect our collective future. Some people are in denial about the reality and gravity of the issue, and others shrug it off, saying the Earth is overpopulated. Others acknowledge the sperm count decline and the likelihood of a stagnation or decline in global population in the near future, but even they don't engage in much more than hand-wringing. In some ways, the sperm count decline is akin to where global warming was 40 years ago, reported upon but denied or ignored. Sometime between the 2006 release of Al Gore's Oscar-winning documentary An Inconvenient Truth and now, the climate crisis has been accepted, at least by most people, as a real threat. My hope is that the same will happen with the reproductive turmoil that's upon us. Increasingly, scientists are in agreement on the threat. Now we need the public to take this issue seriously. As a leading researcher on reproductive health and the environment, I feel it's my duty to draw attention to these alarming changes to sexual development and function. My interest in the effects of environmental factors on reproductive health started in the 1980s, when I investigated a cluster of miscarriages in Santa Clara County, California, a trend that was eventually tied to toxic waste from a semiconductor plant that had leaked into the community's drinking water. Gradually, I became increasingly interested in investigating the potential effects that environmental chemicals can have on reproductive, sexual, and gender-related development in men, women, and children. Over the last 30 years, I've conducted studies on everything from the origins of genital anomalies in newborns and the influence of prenatal stress on reproductive development in offspring, to the effects of many hours of TV watching on testicular function, the connection between high exposure to chemicals called phthalates and low interest in sexual activity, and many other subjects related to reproductive health. 
Reversing the various reproduction sabotaging effects that we're living with will require fundamental changes, including sweeping modifications to the kinds and volumes of chemicals that are manufactured and pumped into the environment. To make this happen, significant political and economic challenges will need to be overcome, a prospect that's daunting but urgently needed, in my opinion. Still, I believe this can be accomplished. That's where this book comes in. In part one, you'll learn more about the changes that are happening to reproductive and sexual development among humans and other species. Part two takes a detailed look at the sources of these shifts, namely the environmental, lifestyle, and sociological factors that are contributing to these trends. And part three explores the ripple effects the shifts are having on long-term health and survival. In part four, I will guide you towards smart ways to protect yourself and your unborn children, as well as other steps you can take to help remedy what threatens both human and animal species. It's time to get started on altering these alarming trajectories and taking back the future. Consider this a clarion call for all of us to do what we can to safeguard our fertility, the fate of mankind, and the planet. Part 1. The Changing Landscape of Sex and Fertility 1. Reproductive Shock. Hormonal Havoc in Our Midst. The Spermageddon Scare. In late July 2017, it seemed as if every media outlet around the globe had become obsessed with the state of human sperm counts. Psychology Today cried, Going, going, gone? Human sperm counts are plunging. While the BBC declared sperm count drop could make humans extinct. And the Financial Times announced urgent wake-up call for male health as sperm counts plummet. A month later, Newsweek published a major cover story on the same subject. Who's killing America's sperm? By the end of the year, my scientific paper, Temporal Trends in Sperm Count, a Systematic Review and Meta-Regression Analysis, which sparked these stories, and hundreds of others around the world, was ranked number 26 among all referenced scientific papers published worldwide, according to Altmetric's 2017 report. This truly was the drop heard around the world. These days, the world as we've known it feels as though it's changing at warp speed. The same could be said for the status of the human race. It's not only that sperm counts have plummeted by 50% in the last 40 years, it's also that this alarming rate of decline could mean the human race will be unable to reproduce itself if the trend continues. As my study collaborator Hagai Levine, MD, asks, What will happen in the future? Will sperm count reach zero? Is there a chance that this decline would lead to extinction of the human species? Given the extinction of multiple species, often associated with man-made environmental disruption, this is certainly possible. Even if there is low probability for such a scenario, given the horrific implications, we have to do our best to prevent it. 
This is especially worrisome because the sperm count decline that's occurring in Western countries is unabating. It's steep, significant, and continuing, with no signs of tapering off. As Danish researcher and clinician Niels Skekebeck, M.D., who was the first person to alert the scientific community to the role of environmental factors in sperm decline, said, It's an inconvenient message, but the species is under threat, and that should be a wake-up call to all of us. If this doesn't change in a generation, it is going to be an enormously different society for our grandchildren and their children. Indeed, if the decline continues at the same rate, by 2050, many couples will need to turn to technology, such as assisted reproduction, frozen embryos, even eggs and sperm that are created from other cells in the laboratory, yes, this is actually being done, to reproduce. A dystopian future? Some of what we've been thinking of as fiction, from stories such as The Handmaid's Tale and Children of Men, is rapidly becoming reality. In the winter of 2017, I presented my sperm decline findings at the One Health, One Planet conference, which focused on the interconnected health of different species on the planet, the damage being inflicted by our mad industrialization of the environment, and its devastating effects on frogs, birds, polar bears, and other species. After presenting the results of our analysis, which were shocking enough to the audience, I spoke for the first time about what sperm decline could mean for Homo sapiens. That night, I awoke from a dream, feeling incredibly anxious as I suddenly realized the full implications of the story I'd put together. That given the declines in sperm count and testosterone levels, and the increases in hormonally active chemicals that are being spewed into the environment, we really are in a dangerous situation for mankind and world fertility. This was no longer only a matter of scientific study for me. I felt and remain genuinely scared by these findings on a personal level. In some ways, the picture looks even worse when you delve deeper because it's not just an issue for men. Women, children, and other species are also having their reproductive development and function commandeered in a dysfunctional direction. In some countries throughout the world, including the United States, a massive sexual slump is underway due to declines in people's sex drives and interest in sexual activity. Men, including younger guys, are also experiencing greater rates of erectile dysfunction. In animals, there have been changes in mating behavior, with more reports of male turtles humping other male turtles, and female fish and frogs becoming masculinized after being exposed to certain chemicals. Taken together, these trends are causing scientists and environmentalists to wonder, how and why could this be happening? The answer is complicated. Though these interspecies anomalies may appear to be distinct and isolated incidents, the fact is that they all share several underlying causes. In particular, the ubiquity of insidiously harmful chemicals in the modern world is threatening the reproductive development and functionality of both humans and other species. The worst offenders? Chemicals that interfere with our body's natural hormones. 
These endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs, are playing havoc with the building blocks of sexual and reproductive development. They're everywhere in our modern world, and they're inside our bodies, which is problematic on many levels. Here's why. Hormones, particularly two of the sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone, are what make reproductive function possible. Both the amount of each hormone and the ratio between these hormones are important for both sexes. The sweet spots for these ratios are different for each sex. Depending on whether you are a man or a woman, your body needs optimal amounts of estrogen and testosterone, not too much or too little of either one. To make it more complicated, the timing of their release can alter reproductive development and functionality, and the transport of hormones can be an issue as well. If they don't get to the right place at the right time, essential processes such as sperm production or ovulation won't be set into motion. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals, as well as lifestyle factors, including diet, physical activity, smoking, and alcohol or drug use, can alter these parameters, sending levels of these crucial hormones in the wrong direction. High-altitude worries Another, no less important or complicated question is, what do these reproductive changes mean for the fate of the human race and the future of the planet? It's not just a matter of survival, whether humans will continue to be able to reproduce or whether the human race will die out in a children of men type scenario. These issues have subtler, more personal consequences as well. Take declining sperm counts. Statistically, this phenomenon goes hand-in-hand hand with many other problems for males, including an increased risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and premature mortality. You'll learn more about these downstream health hazards in Chapter 8. And again, this isn't just about men. Not only is women's fertility being affected, even if less obviously or dramatically, but sperm quality can be altered by changes that occur when male fetuses are in the mother's womb. At that time, the fetus is affected by the mother's choices and habits, which means that women can serve as conduits for potentially harmful chemical exposures. Contrary to previous belief, the womb does not protect the fetus against chemical assault, and a developing fetus has few defenses against the infiltration of chemicals. Looked at another way, the most important events in a male's life, in terms of sexual and reproductive development, occur while he's still in utero. Babies and children are more vulnerable to these chemical assaults than adults, but those who are most vulnerable haven't been born. The sperm decline signals changes that affect everybody. As some population experts and scientists put it, a demographic time bomb is on the horizon. Future generations won't be able to meet the financial and caretaking needs of an ever-increasing number of older adults and retired workers, given the declining fertility rate. And the changes in sexual development taking place all over the world appear to have been accompanied by an apparent rise in gender fluidity, which is not a negative development, in my opinion. The point is, human sexuality and society are in flux, and this flux affects us all. 
It's as if the snow globe has been shaken, altering the reproductive landscape inside. Only this is happening in real life. What comes to mind when you see a reference to the 1% effect, a common phrase in the cultural lexicon? Most people think of socioeconomic status, namely a ranking in the top 1% of wealth in the United States. Not me. I think of the fact that the rate of adverse reproductive changes in males is increasing by about 1% per year. This includes the rates of declining sperm counts and testosterone levels, increasing rates of testicular cancer, and the projected worldwide increase in the prevalence of erectile dysfunction. On the female side of the equation, miscarriage rates are also increasing by about 1% per year. A coincidence? I think not. Questioning the issues. If you're skeptical about all this, that's fair enough. I used to be too. Whether it's because I'm a trained scientist or a natural-born skeptic, I've always been a firm believer in Albert Einstein's assertion that blind belief in authority is the greatest enemy of truth. That axiom has underscored all of my research on environmental influences on human health, including the effects of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, water contamination, and drugs, as well as my interpretation of other people's research. So when the British Medical Journal published a study in 1992 that claimed worldwide sperm counts had fallen significantly in the previous 50 years, which was a major bombshell, I found the issue intriguing, but I had significant doubts about the validity of the results. After reading and rereading what came to be known as the Carlson Paper, named after lead author Elizabeth Carlson, I was among the skeptics who questioned the methodology and the selection of samples, and I thought of many potential biases that might have distorted the findings. Granted, I was hardly alone. Numerous critiques and editorials ensued. But the findings of that study were so important from a public health perspective that I couldn't put them out of my mind, even though I was busy doing research about the risk of birth defects and miscarriage from solvents in drinking water. Doubtful as I was about the findings of that particular study, I knew that certain environmental chemicals could be decreasing sperm counts, so I wanted to investigate. It felt like a bit of a detective case. In 1994, I was appointed to the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Hormonally Active Agents in the Environment, and soon after, I was asked to tell the committee whether the Carlson paper's conclusions were justified. For six months, I combed the literature to find all the criticisms that had been raised about the paper. Then I reviewed the 61 studies the Carlson team had included in its analysis to try to address those criticisms. Particular questions I pursued included, did the early studies include healthier, younger men than the later ones did? Did the later studies include more smokers or obese men, which would create a distorted picture of what was happening? Had the method of counting sperm changed over 50 years in a way that made more recent sperm counts lower? To get to the bottom of this mystery, I found two colleagues, Laura Fenster and Eric Elkin, who were willing to help me. The results were utterly astounding. 
After six months of data crunching and considering potential biases and confounding factors, our overall conclusion agreed almost exactly with that of the Carlson team. Because we'd accounted for the geographic location in the various studies, we found that sperm counts really were declining in the United States and Europe. But what about the rest of the world? After these findings were published in 1997, I felt that we needed to ask whether sperm counts were different in different locations, since that would point to environmental factors at play. I've spent the last 20 years basically trying to answer that question. After conducting many more studies on semen quality, sperm decline, and related factors, I feel that I have. Not only have I shifted from being dubious to being utterly convinced that a dramatic decline in sperm counts is occurring, I've also discovered that various lifestyle factors and environmental exposures may be acting in tandem or in a cumulative fashion to fuel the decline. Fast forward to the summer of 2017, when my latest paper on this subject, written with my colleague Hagai Levine and five other committed researchers, went viral. The news my colleagues and I reported in our meta-analysis, between 1973 and 2011, sperm concentration, the number of sperm per milliliter of semen, dropped more than 52% among random men in Western countries. Meanwhile, the total sperm count fell by more than 59%. We came to these conclusions after examining the findings from 185 studies involving 42,935 men that had been conducted during this 38-year period. To be clear, these men weren't selected based on their fertility status. They were everyday Joes and Johns, ordinary men. Given that the findings pertain primarily to Western countries, this may sound like a first-world problem, but it's not. Rather, I suspect that societies in which people are likely to begin having children at a younger age are less likely to be affected by the fertility-damaging effects of environmental chemicals and life stressors. In our meta-analysis, there were much less data on sperm counts from men from South America, Asia, and Africa. However, more recent research reports declines in those regions as well. Taking this personally, what does all this mean in relatable terms? When people hear about these threats to their fertility, it's a big blow to their egos, their sense of potency, and their confidence in being able to sustain themselves as a family, a culture, and a species. It's startling and chilling when you realize that the number of children you may be capable of having is slightly less than half of that your grandparents could conceive. It's also shocking that in some parts of the world, the average 20-something woman today is less fertile than her grandmother was at 35. The precipitous drop in sperm counts is an example of a canary-in-the-coal-mine scenario. In other words, the sperm count decline may be Mother Nature's way of acting as a whistleblower, drawing attention to the insidious damage human beings have wrought on the built and natural worlds. Which leads to a third crucial question about all this. What can we do about the problem? 
There are steps we can take, both as individuals and as a society, to stay healthy and protect our sexual development. But the first thing we have to do is learn more about the nature of these problems. Most people outside the scientific community are totally unaware of these disturbing trends, and as a researcher who is committed to identifying environmental causes of reproductive health problems, I feel it's my duty to draw attention to them. Whether it's through our lifestyles or the chemical contaminants we've brought into the world, we, as human beings, have inadvertently unleashed these problems. At this rate, it's hard to know what the future will look like unless we take conscious and considered steps to protect ourselves and curb the chemicals that are infiltrating our daily lives. The time has come for us to stop playing Russian roulette with our reproductive capacities. 2. The Diminished Male Where have all the good sperm gone? A Date with Donation and Destiny Mondays tend to be slow and quiet days at the Fairfax Cryobank in Philadelphia, especially compared to Fridays. On Fridays, men between the ages of 18 and 39 are often booked back-to-back -back for one of the two private rooms, where the recommendation is, bring what you may need, as in porn, to engage in the act of sperm donation. There's a simple reason Mondays aren't as busy. Men who are donating sperm are advised to abstain from sexual activity for 72 hours to set them up for an optimal sperm sample. Abstinence affects the concentration and volume of a sperm sample, and not many men are willing to do that over the weekend. We want to see good quality specimens, and with about 72 hours of abstinence, most guys will have the best percentage of modal sperm, explains Michelle Adi, Ph.D., laboratory director and director of operations at the Fairfax Cryobank. Sometimes they have it, and sometimes they don't. They're not always good at listening to our advice about the abstinence hours. Sperm have always been a precious commodity, given the critical role they play in generating new life. Even a relatively small change in the typical sperm count has a substantial impact on the percentage of men who will be classified as infertile or subfertile. It's not just about the number of sperm, however. Certain qualities, including the movement patterns of these little swimmers, are also essential for them to be able to wiggle upstream to meet the egg of their dreams. After a man starts producing sperm during early adolescence, he's at continuous risk for potential harm to his swimmers, a vulnerability that lasts for the rest of his life. That's because spermatogenesis, the production of sperm, which occurs in the seminiferous tubules that form the bulk of each testicle, starts in early puberty, when a boy is 10 to 12 years old, and continues throughout his life. In a healthy, fertile man, the testicles produce 200 million to 300 million sperm cells per day, only about 50% of which become viable sperm. It takes about 65 to 75 days for sperm to mature, and a new cycle of sperm production starts approximately every 16 days. When the sperm mature, 
They leave the tubules and enter the epididymis, a coiled, tubular organ that's attached to the testicles. Here, the mature sperm learn to swim and fine-tune their environment. Mature sperm resemble microscopic tadpoles. They have an enzyme-coated head, a tail, and a thinner portion of the tail called an endpiece. Once inside the epididymis, mature sperm wait to be ejaculated into the vagina, or somewhere else, not unlike the scene depicted in Woody Allen's film Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, where the sperm are waiting to parachute out of an aircraft and complete their mission. On average, each time a man ejaculates, he releases two to six milliliters, about a teaspoon, of semen which contains as many as a hundred million sperm. Even the healthiest, best-shaped sperm don't pause to ask for directions. A relatively small percentage of sperm will swim in the right direction, as in toward a beckoning egg. If the man doesn't ejaculate, the sperm will die and get reabsorbed by the body. The reality is, sperm tend to live fast and die young. Sperm 101. The study of sperm began in a fairly bizarre fashion. In 1677, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, a Dutch tradesman and self-taught scientist who was fascinated with microscopes, collected his semen after having sex with his wife and examined it under a microscope. He saw millions of tiny, wriggling shapes that he called animalcules, little animals, swimming in the fluid. He believed that each sperm contained a miniature, preformed human being that would unfurl and develop inside the mother after being nourished by the female egg. That theory was obviously debunked long ago. But what Van Leeuwenhoek saw under the microscope is the same as what we see today when examining a magnified semen sample from a fertile male. A healthy sperm cell is made up of a torpedo-like head that contains DNA, a middle section that's packed with energy-providing mitochondria, and a relatively long tail that propels the sperm forward. Each sperm is minuscule, roughly 0.05 millimeter or 0.002 inch long, much too tiny to be seen by the naked eye. In the scientific world, Research protocols often change over time, but when it comes to counting sperm, the method endorsed by the World Health Organization hasn't changed much since the 1930s. Sperm are still counted using the hemocytometer, an instrument that was invented in 1902 by French anatomist Louis-Charles Malassé and originally used to count blood cells. The device consists of a thick glass slide with a rectangular indentation that creates a chamber that contains a laser-etched grid of perpendicular lines. To evaluate a man's sperm concentration at a sperm bank or another lab, a drop of semen is placed on a slide and examined under a microscope, and a trained technician counts how many sperm are within a square on a grid pattern. In human beings, Normal sperm concentration ranges from 15 million to greater than 200 million sperm per milliliter or per millilambert of semen. 
The World Health Organization has officially deemed a concentration of fewer than 15 million per millilambert to be low. But according to a much-cited Danish study, men with a sperm concentration of less than 40 million per milliliter are considered to have an impaired likelihood of conceiving. My own research found that in 1973, the average man in Western countries had a sperm concentration of 99 million per milliliter. By 2011, it had fallen to 47.1 million per milliliter. But we'll come back to that shortly. For fertility, it isn't just the number of sperm that matters. It's also about the sperm's shape and how they move. That is, are they able to swim in a way that suggests they're likely to be able to reach and penetrate an unfertilized egg? If sperm are swimming in a circle, what's called non-progressive motility, that's not good. It's the equivalent of revving your car's engine in neutral. You're not going to get anywhere. If they're not moving at all, but instead are hanging out like couch potatoes with hangovers, that's a problem too, since such immobility tends to persist. Sperm that move too slowly or sluggishly, with a forward progression of less than 25 micrometers per second, simply aren't going to get to their intended target. What's considered normal or acceptable motility varies considerably among species. A man must have total sperm motility of greater than 50% to be considered normal in this respect. By contrast, to pass a soundness exam for breeding, stallions are recommended to have greater than 60%, and dogs should have greater than 70% progressively modal sperm. The parameters that are used to evaluate sperm quality under a microscope include concentration, how densely sperm are packed in a unit volume of semen, vitality, the percentage of sperm that are alive, motility, the sperm's movement or swimming ability, and morphology, the size and shape of sperm. All of these metrics matter, and based on recent evaluations of these elements, the quality of human sperm is going down as well as the quantity. Aside from a complete absence of sperm, called azoospermia, no single sperm parameter can predict that a man will be completely infertile, though they're all related to the chances of successfully achieving a pregnancy. The standard big three, sperm concentration, motility, and morphology, are routinely used to assess semen quality and fertility. Studies have found that when reproductive medicine clinicians examined the three major measures of semen quality in approximately 1,500 men, a little more than half of whom were fertile and slightly less than half of whom were infertile based on these sperm parameters, all three parameters mattered in identifying the infertile men. But there was an additive effect. When any one of the measures was in the infertile range, the man was about twice as likely to be infertile as a man with none of these measures in the infertile range. When any two of the measures were in the infertile range, he was six times more likely to be infertile. And when all three measures fell in the infertile range, his chance of being infertile was 16 times higher. Giving at the Office
When a man donates to a sperm bank, his sperm need to meet certain benchmarks, only one of which relates to the sperm count. Sperm banks, whose specialty is, of course, collecting viable sperm in mass quantities, are facing mounting challenges across these different criteria. In a study published in 2016 involving 9,425 semen specimens from nearly 500 men, researchers found a significant decline between 2003 and 2013 in sperm concentration, motility, and total count among young adult men who were attending or had recently completed college in the Boston area. While 69% of the aspiring sperm donors made the cut in 2003, only 44% did in 2013. This was true despite that the more recent group of guys had improved lifestyle variables, such as a decline in alcohol use, smoking, and body weight, and an increase in steady exercise. Similarly, in a recent study involving potential sperm donors ages 19 to 38 throughout the United States, researchers examined more than 100,000 semen specimens and found a decline in total sperm count, sperm concentration, and modal sperm between 2007 and 2017. Downward trends are occurring in other countries, too. In China, for example, among young men who applied to be sperm donors at the Hunan Province Human Sperm Bank of China, the percentage of qualified donors dropped from 56% in 2001 to 18% in 2015, a two-thirds decline. By any criteria, sperm just aren't doing well these days, and most men don't even realize this. While the Fairfax Cryobank has experienced an increase in sperm donors in recent years, thanks to its expanded recruitment efforts, the sperm bank has seen a drop in sperm count and motility among freshly donated sperm samples. Before being suitable for use in intrauterine insemination, IUI, or in vitro fertilization, IVF, donated sperm must undergo a washing process, often involving centrifugal force, not to make the sperm shiny and polished for their big date with an egg, but to remove chemicals, mucus, and non-swimming sperm from semen and to separate sperm from the seminal fluid. After the wash, sperm are placed in vials. Since I started working here in 2006, we have seen a decrease in the number of vials per sperm sample that we're able to get, by about half, Dr. Roddy says. This is especially significant because most sperm samples are frozen for later use. They literally are frozen in time, and approximately 50% of the healthy, modal sperm cells that are collected in a sample and frozen won't survive the freeze-thaw process. They'll die. Yet, while the supply of high-quality sperm is declining in some parts of the world, the demand for healthy, viable sperm has increased. The rising rates of abnormal and inadequate sperm volume are certainly playing a role, but another big driver is the uptick in requests from different demographic groups. In particular, more single women and same-sex couples are looking to have children, and they need high-quality sperm to achieve their goal. Prospective parents could use sperm from a friend or family member, often referred to as known donors, and some do, 
but for obvious reasons, this can be emotionally fraught. The other option is to use a strictly screened stranger's, an anonymous donor's, sperm through a sperm bank or fertility clinic. And that's where the demand is highest. In 2018, the global sperm bank market was valued at $4.33 billion. It's expected to reach $5.45 billion by 2025. A widely touted estimate is that 30,000 to 60,000 children are conceived through sperm donation each year in the United States alone. Playing the infertility blame game. Why do these sperm's supply and demand details matter? Because beyond the doomsday scenarios that garner headlines, all too often, the psychological and medical burdens of dealing with fertility issues have been placed squarely on women's shoulders. Not only is this incorrect on the most basic level, given that it takes viable sperm as well as a healthy egg to create a pregnancy, it's especially wrong now, when a high proportion of infertility issues can more clearly be placed at men's feet. Admittedly, only recently have scientists and medical professionals begun to appreciate the extent to which fertility depends on the health and environment of both the male and the female partner, as well as the interactions between them. Historically, fertility has been a concept applied only to women. One reason is that demographers have traditionally defined the fertility rate as the average number of live births per woman of reproductive age. It's widely known that a woman loses precious eggs as she gets older, and as a result, constant reminders appear in the media and elsewhere about the worrisome ticking of women's biological clocks and the impact that certain lifestyle practices can have on fertility. Many women are aware of these realities, and some feel pressure to settle down and have babies by a certain age. Men? Not so much. The recent decades have seen a substantial change in perspective, at least in the scientific community, as it has become increasingly recognized that men contribute to a greater proportion of infertility cases than previously believed. Male reproductive issues are currently thought to cause approximately one-quarter to one-third of infertility cases, equal to the proportion of female reproductive challenges. The remaining cases of infertility stem from a combination of male and female factors. Perhaps a woman is slightly subfertile because she has irregular ovulatory patterns, for example, and her male partner is also a bit subfertile due to reduced sperm motility, so they have trouble conceiving. But if either was with a partner who was incredibly fertile, yes, some people really are, getting pregnant wouldn't be as challenging. The Fertility Literacy Gap Despite these realities, most men are unaware that the quality of their sperm can affect their chances of successfully conceiving a pregnancy. If they ejaculate plenty of semen, they think they're good to go, which isn't necessarily true. A 2016 Canadian study found that, while most of the 701 participating men considered themselves to be at least somewhat knowledgeable about male reproduction and fertility, 
many were unable to identify risk factors, such as obesity, diabetes, alcohol consumption, and high cholesterol, that are associated with male infertility. In general, men have a no-problem attitude toward conception. They simply assume that if they want to have children, they'll be able to impregnate their partner easily enough. But that isn't always the case, especially in our modern world. As an example, consider Megan and James, former multi-sport college athletes who are still physically fit. They believed it would be a cinch for them to get pregnant when they were ready to start a family. It wasn't. Megan, 34, a nutrition consultant, and James, 32, a banker, tried to conceive for a year without success, at which point they both began to question her fertility status. So Megan went to her OBGYN and had a battery of physical examinations and blood tests that indicated everything seemed to be A-OK. -okay. When James subsequently went to a urologist for a comprehensive checkup, he discovered that his sperm count and motility rate were slightly low and that he had a narrowing of the pathway through which semen travels before being ejaculated. James felt blindsided by the news, especially because he'd always thought of himself as a super-healthy, virile man. When the urologist asked about James's lifestyle habits, most of which were pristine, he learned that James would relax in a hot tub or steam room after playing squash or working out four or five times per week. The urologist advised him to eschew these hot environments because severe heat is known to be toxic to sperm. After steering clear of these hot spots for several weeks, James and his wife conceived on their own. Naturally, they were thrilled, but James was left feeling flummoxed. How could he have had this sperm flow problem all these years without knowing about it? Why hadn't anyone ever told him that frequent exposure to heat could harm his swimmers? Women receive lots of information about how to prepare their bodies for making a baby. Why don't men? James asked. As James discovered, it's not unusual for men to have no clue that there's a problem with their sperm or its transport system until they try to make a baby. This happened to Daniel, 40, and his wife, Laura, 35, who spent a year trying to conceive to no avail. After they both had tests done, Daniel was diagnosed as infertile because his sperm were abnormally shaped, Few had all the component parts. This was at least partially caused by a condition called varicocele, an enlargement of the veins in the scrotum, which can decrease sperm count and reduce sperm quality. When the doctor said I would probably never have kids of my own, I was devastated, recalls Daniel, an attorney. I still have no idea why or how I could have had this condition without knowing it. But he wasn't willing to give up hope, so he underwent a procedure to correct the varicocele, which improved his semen and sperm quality over the subsequent six months. The couple now have four-year-old twins. Context of white supremacy. So we'll pick up the subtitle. We're in chapter two, the subtitle, Down for the Count. That's what we'll pick up at. We are in chapter two, subtitle, Down for the or the count the cows number to dial if you have thoughts to share on the first portion of the reading seven two zero 
716-736-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail dot com feel free drop a line if you're not able to uh, call in if you have thoughts to share on the reading uh, let's see one of our investors wrote in I'll get to all right uh, greetings Gus chapter one the dent was me just the, there we go chapter one the damage being inflicted by our mad industrialization. I think you could substitute the global system of racism, white supremacy for industrialization. Absolutely. Mad is an interesting adjective there as well. Uh, white rage and or crazy. Number two, a massive sexual slump is underway due to declines in people's sex drive including younger guys. The term incel is discussed in voluntary celibate. I guess we now have to talk about Bocell's voluntary celibate. Hmm. Number three, the fetus is now affected by the mother's choices and habits. For non-white victims, the fetus is more importantly affected by the choices of racist man and racist woman. Examples being housed with lead contamination. I think today they announced the uh, Flint, Michigan water settlement. It was something like, let's say maybe a half billion dollars. Have to look at the details, all that. Anywho lead contamination such as what Freddie Gray of Baltimore experienced and poisoning of non-white victims by Monsanto Corporation in Anniston, Alabama. A lawsuit regarding this was won by Johnny Cochran. Harriet A. Washington, a terrible thing to waste, yes. Number four, changes in sexual development taking place all over the world appear to have been accompanied by an apparent rise in gender fluidity which is not a negative development in my opinion. This statement seems incredibly contradictory and is illogical since the author has spent so much time describing the damage done to sexual organs by chemicals. Now, this could be uh, part of the, hey, I don't want to be branded like the black people. I don't want to be tarred as a homophobe. So I want to include this information that there seems also to be an increase in so-called uh, gender fluidity. In addition to all of these chemicals and infertility and problems, how it's adversely impacting health and human development. But I don't want to be tarred as saying, you know, there's something incorrect 
uh, about gender fluidity. I don't want to, you know, folks saying that I'm bashing these folks that could have been, you know, part of it uh, to make sure that this doesn't, uh, you know, embroil her in some brouhaha impact book sales and such. Uh, let's see. Number five in our meta analysis, there were there were much less data on sperm counts from men from South America, Asia and Africa. However, more recent research reports declines in those regions as well. I am interested to see if sperm counts eventually are more affected in countries with lots of non-white victims. Hmm will be interesting especially that word industrializing uh, that's what they say about many of the so-called non-white areas the entire continent of uh, Africa India many parts of China South Korea industrializing industrializing they can get all the wonders of technology and everything so uh, people have even talked about if they so-called industrialize in a way where they are building and creating all these new structures infrastructure and all the rest with lots of toxic technology the way that white people have in most of the other parts of the world ye, could have disastrous consequences lots to think about uh, let's see get in one so he's moved on we're in chapter two now give out one more and then the rest I think we have not quite got here yet uh, so his first note from chapter two 30,000 to 60,000 children are conceived through sperm donation each year in the United States alone I wonder what percentage are classified as black. I would suspect it's on the low end. Uh, I know we had talked about this before, I believe, with Dr. or excuse me, with Dorothy Roberts, uh, her book, Killing the Black Body, uh, her other book, uh, Shattered Bonds, about the child welfare system, uh, that generally, generally these procedures uh, in vitro fertilization and all the rest of it are very expensive can be tens of thousands of dollars and the price is probably going up and up and up uh, and so a lot of non-white people are already excluded uh, via price uh, and then even the location they talked about how in a lot of areas where black people uh, are warehoused forced to live they don't have fertility clinics they have uh, the places where you can go to get an abortion Planned Parenthood and such places where white people live more likely to have a fertility clinic but I don't have the exact stats so we'll have to see anywho uh, let's see uh, folks who dialed in with questions I'm so glad we're reading this book for many reasons I have to get to my notes to give out some of the specifics but uh, let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open Hello, may I be heard? Irie in Louisiana, one of our aforementioned veteran participants. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's right. I didn't get anything um, free today because, um, nah. <laughs> nah, it's probably not quality food. Um, but thank you, I suppose. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm glad to have caught the beginning of this because um, it's just kind of satisfying and reaffirming. I was trying to explain to some non-white people about how the whole, um, you know, trans phenomenon, gender, non-binary thing is, is not something inherent to nature. 
and that there's reasons for it, um, cultural and, and biological, and, and they wouldn't hear it. Um, and they took it like the author said, like I was trying, to, like I was attacking them. And I, I suspect that it could be why she said that. Like, I have to say, oh, no, you're not wrong. And, you know, um, contradict yourself, like you said. But um, the other thing I was thinking about was, um, you know, in the system of racism, white supremacy, they don't teach about overall health and how the body works. Um, there are several occasions where I lightly went over some biology with um, middle school and high school students. And um, they said to me that they had taken biology or they had taken, like, health and that wasn't discussed. So I know good and well they're not talking about, hey, guys, you know, sperm count. Don't sit in the sauna. Don't sit in the hot tub. Don't be, you know, don't drink things with, you know, a whole lot of sugar substitutes in it. Um, that's not getting said to anybody. And, and it's pervasive in the products that we have. Like, if you're not selective and don't read labels, you're going to, uh, ingest something that probably has an endo, endocrine interrupter. Um, I am also interested, interested, excuse me, if well, how much information she's going to give on the homosexuality because she did mention the male frogs, pumping male frogs. And so I guess scientifically I took that as an example that even though there is an issue with the hormones, um, that are being produced in animals, including human beings. It's not that sexuality is gone. It's just, it's, it's not productive or constructive. It's, it's, it's almost, it's, it's like, um, like a graduated form of masturbation even. I'm sorry if that's not a word you can't say, but we're talking about reproduction, so. I'm, I'm, you know, ready to hear that part. And um, I just wanted to share, um, there was an interesting lecture real quick, Dr. Gilbert Blair on, it's, he has two, the man lecture and the woman lecture. And he mentions, um, I have to look into it further, I'm still learning, but he mentions that we were so um, divine in form, meaning like, uh, you know, uh, almost perfect or uh, Ideal, I guess would be the word, that um, women were able to impregnate themselves and that um, basically how the, 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 the sex organs in men and women are shared, but because of our step down, as he might put it, into homo sapienness, we lost the ability to procreate not only sexually, but asexually, if we chose. And um, I don't know. I think that's something that people are interested in this book. They may want to check out that video and then do some other research because that's I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of, you know, far out, you know. But I'll mute my line for now. And thank you, everyone. Much obliged, uh, Irie. I was trying to find a, yep, can't find it. I have to see if I can get it later. It was a report to match with what she just shared, but slacking a little bit, I guess. Um, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open.
Hello, Gus. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Helen in New York. Yes, ma'am. Hi, greetings, DTR. Okay, first I want to decode the cover of the book. I think that using the black line is very interesting. Any other color could have been used, but a black line pointing down, I think that needs decoding. Number two, Woody Allen was mentioned in the, mo- um, in the book, his movie, Everything You Need to Know, Learn About Sex. And, and we just did the book club with that not too long ago. And chapter two, or the third thing, chapter two, the title. Can you, can you read the title off or can you see it or no? The, uh, the subtitle and all, that's what you mean? Yeah, yeah, it had the term male in it, correct? Let me, uh, go back and look at it. It's so big. Let's see. Alrighty, so the full title, uh, Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threat, yep, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development. I thought that was interesting. I think at that moment they could have possibly been talking about non-white males because as you read on later into the, as you read into the chapter, they, they switch it from male to men. So I, I think that's just me decoding. <laughs> um, I, I could be an error. And number four, when the white guy examined his own sperm after having sex with his wife, um, it reminds me of when Neely Fuller says how white people will, like, examine, a, go to the bottom of the sea and examine, you know, the tiniest speck of sand, a grain of sand. Yeah. And that's it. I mute my line. They certainly will. Context of white supremacy. Much obliged, Helen in New York. Uh, I This is just a guess because I haven't read this book before, so I'm still learning with everybody else. But my guess might be because she spends a good bit of time, some of that we've already heard talking about uh, the impact of all these chemicals and all the rest on children, too. That might have influenced why she said male and females, because she does talk about how this is altering children as well but it could be non-white people we'll have to see like i said i'm i'm just guessing i don't know haven't even i barely read a chapter yet uh let's see uh other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share proceed Can I add something real quick so nobody said anything? Uh, Irene in Louisiana? Yes, ma'am. Yes. To the person that uh, spoke behind me, thank you for mentioning Woody Allen. I meant to mention that. I actually had a thought when we when I, the book was starting. I was like, well, there's no way this book could get tacky because it's about it's science. And then she mentioned Woody Allen. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, like. I was like, ah, that's all. Everybody loves Woody Allen. Uh, I found the report. I got an extra half second there. Uh, Senator Josh Hawley claims masculinity is under attack. Maybe we'll hear about that one uh, this weekend, but I thought that was, uh, 
yeah, the dropping fertility rates and all of that, like, woof, might be related. Uh, while folks are, I guess, getting their thoughts together, other folks that we haven't heard from yet, uh, I will share a thought or two, some of the notes that I took. Uh, this book isn't very big either. I think it's a little bit longer than Shaft, so we might be on it more than a month, but this is not a super long book. So hopefully we'll get constructive info and then people can be thinking of a new book. We should finish this easily, finish this book before the new year. Uh, let's see. She talked, this is in the prologue, she said there's been a rise of abnormal genitals in wildlife, inclu including unusually small penises in alligators panthers and mink as well as an increase in fish frogs birds and snapping turtles that have both male and female gonads or genitalia dr welsing would frequently talk about how the system of white supremacy in general and then all of the chemicals toxins just talked about flint and all the rest of it how all of that yes it has a huge impact on people non-white people in particular but also the planet in general. Dr. Marimba Ani talked about that too in Urugu. Uh, but looking at data and how some fish, it was changing their sexual behavior. Exactly what she talks about right here in the prologue. Probably be more information about that in the book as we continue. Uh, let's see. Uh, she says Western. I'm always of the opinion Western meaning white. Uh, I Again, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, White Genetic Annihilation. And the census report that came out this year about reduced populations of white people. This book just came out in Black History Month of this year, February 2021. Lots of attention. Like they were talking about this book, as I said, talk radio around the world. All of this, I think, feeding into that anxiety, white genetic annihilation. We got to do something. Uh, but she says a serious threat to Western populations on both ends of the human lifespan uh, let's see the libraries here are back open the university library specifically field trip time she says the 2017 publication on my meta-analysis on sperm count decline in Western countries put this issue on the radar screen, grabbing headlines and television coverage around the world. But the findings haven't translated into committees being formed, environmental policies being changed, safer chemicals being manufactured or other concerted efforts being made to address the suspected cause, causes or protect our collective future. It has certainly been talked about a lot now in terms of actually changing all of these things, no, I don't see that Urugu continued destruction of the planet, but I certainly see a lot more conversation about all of like serious hand wringing. What are we going to do? Uh, let's see. She says, my interest in the effects of environmental factors on reproductive health started in the 1980s when I investigated a cluster of miscarriages in Santa Clara County, California, a trend that was eventually tied to toxic waste from a semiconductor plant that had leaked into the community's drinking water. Now, she said this was in the 1980s. I can't even imagine uh, with the amount of water problems, both drought and just not having water, period. And then 
lead contamination and everything else runoff from all the chemicals that they use for industrial farming and wildlife and all that like is probably way worse 40 years later uh let's see I uh, thought this song, but she said over the last 30 years, I've conducted studies on everything from the origins of genital anomalies in newborns and the influence of prenatal stress on reproductive development in offspring to the effects of many hours of TV watching on testicular function. I wish there had been a footnote right there bam I'd added that for my library field trip but hopefully I can check and she'll have notes and or like I said all this is in the prologue generally things in the prologue there'll be more detail as we get into the book so maybe that'll be talked about but I mean I've never heard that like what what's the relationship between how many hours of TV watch of TV you consume and your testicular function like whoa that should be brought up in like health class and school and everything like man if you need a reason not to be a couch potato and to watch that TV time like right there let's see those are my notes from the prologue chapter one so we got a number of film mentions children of men watched that that came out the cows didn't even exist uh, at the time when that film came out but we have talked about that one with Dr. Martin Kevorkian like way it's so old we talked about it when we first came on the air uh, and in that movie if you haven't seen it it's so old it's sci-fi in that movie nobody's pregnant you don't have any children and they find someone who is pregnant she's a black female the whole movie is about trying to safeguard this pregnant uh, black female and a black male who has to be killed in order to protect her that is general summary of children of men uh, mm -mm. she says in some countries throughout the world including the United States a massive sexual slump is underway due to declines in people's sex drives and interest in sexual activity men including younger guys are also experiencing greater rates of erectile dysfunction whoa now that you don't see it talked about or at least I don't in terms of whoa what's going on is this television watching alcohol consumption too much McDonald I don't hear it on that end I just see the end result other way Viagra pharmaceutical companies like ah, eh, we won't get to what's causing all this we'll just get some pills so that you can have an erection for 24 hours and feel great like that sort of thing she continues all the same paragraph in animals there have been changes in mating behavior with more reports of male turtles humping other male turtles exactly what I talked about I remember Dr. Welsing talking about this like hey I don't want to hear any uh, name calling and just blasting Dr. Welsing as some sort of homophobe or you know you're against the LGBT community and all that no I'm pointing out that hey you can see some of these behavior patterns in animals the male turtles were not humping other male turtles before what's going on with that if you can produce these sort of sexual changes in animals reproductive changes behavioral changes they've got both genitals and all that why would I think that humans wouldn't be susceptible to these problems as well and that that might explain some of the behaviors that I'm seeing in addition to the system of white supremacy
she's talking about that all the time. That's why I said I know she would have she would have had this book in her library. She'd have been telling us to make sure we read it. Uh, let's see. She says uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals as well as lifestyle factors, including diet. First thing mentioned. Diet. Physical activity, which probably gets back to television consumption, smoking and alcohol or drugs can alter these parameters, sending levels of these crucial hormones in the wrong direction. I'd say with these specifically on top of all the other chemicals and things we don't know about, racists do an exemplary job towards maintaining their system at putting non-white people in environments and corrupting our brain computer and behaviors so that we eat really bad food, no physical activity. I think one of our callers dialed in later. She said activity desert puts you someplace where there's no chance where you can go out and go to a park or gym, community center, bike ride. They don't have bike lanes and all that stuff. So you can go out and just have fun, get some fresh air, get some exercise. Eh. Smoking will make sure that you don't have a park or a free yoga center but we will have all the Newport billboards that we can stick in your neighborhood. Newports for all Newports, Newports and menthol cigarettes. And then uh, 40 ounce of your favorite malt liquor. Have that at the corner store. You won't be able to get organic avocados and spinach, and kale and carrots and ginger, but you will have every flavor of malt liquor concoction. You can imagine. Uh, let's see super important she says babies and children are more vulnerable to these chemical assaults than adults but those who are most vulnerable haven't been born and they're vulnerable even in utero uh, Judith and Leeson talked about that Harry Day Washington uh, talked about that probably many other folks as well but from the moment of conception even before because the sperm and eggs are being impacted by all these chemicals what you eat what you don't eat, alcohol consumption, cigarettes, all the chemicals, lead poisoning. Uh, let's see. The next one, as some population experts and scientists put it, a demographic time bomb, in quotes, is on the horizon. Future generations won't be able to meet the financial and caretaking needs of an ever increasing number of older adults and retired workers especially older white people. If she's talking about so-called Western nations, older white people, because we know black males have super low life expectancy. So they're talking about old white people. Uh, let's see. And the changes in sexual development taking place all over the world appear to have been accompanied by an apparent rise in gender fluidity which is not a negative development in my opinion. Now, that's the one one of our investors pointed out. I did as well, like, wait a minute, that's one where I said also more detail, even explain what do you mean gender fluidity? I don't think anyone should be mistreated regardless if they have some sort of confusion about their gender status or they say that they're fluid or whatever that means any of that none of these folks should be mistreated I think we have a 12 year record I've not advocated mistreating any of these folks although myself Dr. Francis Cress Welsing and many others have said man if these chemicals and just the stress because she mentioned that too of white supremacy racism cigarettes alcohol TV and then you put all this crazy sexual activity on television all of that certainly could 
have some what at a point of gender confusion and then you do all this promoting of that racist so I'm talking about you do all this promoting of that as some sort of great development and that's awesome as opposed to let's replace white supremacy with justice universal man universal woman get all these chemicals out of place and then let's see maybe we won't have as much of this not that they should be mistreated anyway but maybe we won't have all of this gender confusion and what she called gender fluidity but I totally think she it's like you have to say that you can't say anything that's going to sound like you know you're might be talking against these people or think that there could be something incorrect about all of this there could be some confusion about all of this sexual activity going to be talked bad about uh, we got an Albert Einstein mentioned we read his book not that long ago even had some suspicion that he might have been engaged in incorrect sexual behavior with some of those young black children uh, let's see I guess I'll get in one more and then I'll double check even though wow I took a lot of notes on chapter two as well uh, I'll get in two and then I'll see if folks have any uh, thoughts. So the first note that I took from chapter two, the Woody Allen reference, one of our callers mentioned sometimes I, I take that little cues, perhaps from the creator. We are exactly where we are supposed to be, uh, because if we had read this book first part of the year, I would not have known anything about the movie that she referenced, the Woody album, Woody Allen film everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask she didn't even include the entire title not only do I know that movie I've seen that movie because we read Woody Allen in the book club and I even give a pause now everything that I just said about all that sexual confusion being promoted and all the rest of it like whoa, the people who were with us for Woody Allen's book and you want to talk about masculinity under attack and then to have this old 40 year old guy chasing after 17 year olds 25 year age difference between uh, he and Soon Yi in addition just that movie alone now you got uh, a white man going to get some drug potion quaaludes a la Bill Cosby uh, to drug some female to have sexual activity uh, you've got bestiality that's manly right that's going to help with reproduction going out having sex with a sheep having sex with other males it is confusion on top of confusion and in a serious book where she's talking about all this serious research and, all, and this book was published this year why would Woody Allen even be referenced like I thought he was supposed to be persona non grata pick a different film it's not like she went to any detail about the sperm exchange like we could have got all that about how sperm interacts with the egg during sexual intercourse and ejaculation we could have got all that without a Woody Allen like how much power does Woody Allen still have in the uh, in the white culture and with this film specifically even the racism who does Woody Allen's character go to get these quaaludes from a black male An, as he described in the book exotic black male any right uh, last note I'll get in even though I took several the last one I'll get in um, she talked about the fertility clinics and I said specifically that uh, you generally you're not going to see these pricey well financed 
fertility clinics for black people to go and, and do some in vitro fertilization and I'm having some trouble conceiving so I can go get consultation and we can make this happen. No, it's generally, in fact, Harriet A. Washington has that extraordinary sentence in her book, Medical Apartheid, which we read in the book club 2016, where when it was formal plantation white supremacy, it was have as many children as she possibly can. As soon as that ended, it was the exact opposite. We don't need any nigger babies around here. No children for you. Let's get our Planned Parenthood, eugenics, all the rest. That's why I said I can't imagine in vitro fertilization and clinics for whom could that was the paragraph right above that, all that she talks about the price of these clinics that they uh, in 2018 the global sperm bank market was valued at 4.33 billion it's expected to reach 5.45 billion by 2025 that's probably conservative but before all that she says the rising rates of abnormal and in, inadequate sperm volume are certainly playing a role but another big driver is the uptick in requests from different demographic groups, in particular, more single women right there. I thought it was so important. It should be single white women, unless I'm in error. If you all think that it's a substantial number of black moms who are accessing these services so that they can conceive on their own without a male, let me know. But I don't think that's the case. Uh, and then same sex couples. That's another one where I thought it should have been white same-sex couples are looking to have children. Another one, I could be in error. Let me know, but I think price alone would dictate it's probably going to be a substantial number, a disproportionate number of white people using those services. Uh, do we have other folks uh, dialed in, either folks that we missed or people who want to point out if I said something inaccurate or have other thoughts based on what they've heard? Ah, uh, Gus, a diary. Uh, let me see. Give me one second. Just it seems like they're at least their hands up. So I at least want to make sure folks have a chance. And then if they're still, you know, moping and being quiet, then have at it. Uh, let's see. Any of the folks that we missed totally? Can I hear it? Caller in California. Yes, sir. Um, on page four, it says. Consider this a clarion for a clarion call for all of us to do what we can to safeguard our fertility, the fate of mankind and the planet. And I may be um, in error, but if I learn anything from Yerugu and uh, my understanding of racism and white supremacy, mankind is a, a code word for um, white people. But I, think, I thought I was very... Um, this is some sort of this sentence right here, some sort of um, urgent rally call for uh, white people to um, um, do a better job at uh, improving and maintaining maintaining um, their their numbers. And I saw uh, an article, um, a broadcast from the Guardian, with um, the, like the last white only church, and they had um, <laughs> a speaker there. Um, on that broadcast, and he was he was talking about how um, you know we don't want white people to go extinct. And and by the way, he was talking. You would think that like someone is out like hunting white people and causing their extinction, but it's it's the system of white supremacy. You know their numbers are are being um, 
diminished because they have a, a system of white supremacy that destroys the planet and destroys um, all people on this planet, but mostly non-white people. So I just really, uh, this book is, I think this book is very, very, very important and uh, it's definitely um, right on time as you um, mentioned earlier. And I'll move my line. White genetic annihilation. Dr. Welsing, I think she would have said things. And this book is so popular. Like I've played audio segments where they've been talking about this book on different newscasts. I've played some on the compensatory call in and what have you. But yeah, this has been talked about a clarion call, exactly as you said, a clarion call to individuals classified as white. Absolutely. And then I said to take that with the U.S. Census, all that in together. Um, other folks. We'll give them a second. Let's see. Uh, Irie, did you have additional thoughts to share? Yeah, I was just thinking, um, I'm not, I think the numbers are going to be, um, like you said, slanted toward white women, but, um, just online and, uh, conversations that I read on, I guess, YouTube, but your social media. Um, when it comes to non-white black women who consider themselves divesters, I've noticed people saying that they want children and they want black children, um, some of them, but they, they are going to take that uh, artificial insemination route. And um, I, I know someone personally that is um, in the situation looking to do uh, in vitro, um, either, you know, with sperm or hoping to, you know, meet someone eventually. But it's, yes, I think the number is growing a little bit more. Um, and yes, um, the person I know does have, uh, a higher middle income status. So like you said, it's expensive, so it's not going to be, um, typical everyday non-white people, but it, the numbers might be increasing. But I don't have anything to support it. That's all. Much obliged, Irie. I wouldn't be surprised either if the numbers are going up, um, even for non-white people who might be looking for those services. But I think the word I used before, disproportionate. I think the pricing alone probably going to exclude a lot of non-white people. Might be a few uh, who you know are in that income bracket who can afford that service, but probably not going to be widespread I could be in error uh, other other folks comments questions observations from the first uh, little portion of reading that we've done um, yes I have another one here on page 9 it says this was no longer only a matter of scientific study for me I felt and remained genuinely, genuinely scared by these findings on a personal level. And um, the word scared is italicized, and I think it's because to create a, a greater emphasis on that word. So again, another coded message to um, the many, many white people who will be picking up these books to um, get them. I don't know, know what you're wanting the white people to do, uh, change the system of white supremacy to improve their numbers or something. Um, and then further down on the same page, page nine, it says, um, Taken together, these trends are causing scientists and, and environmentalists wonder, how and why could this be happening? The answer is complicated. 
Though these interspecies anomalies may, may appear to be um, distinct and isolated incidents, the fact is that they all share several underlying causes. And um, I think uh, it's not complicated. All of this is happening because we live in a system of white supremacy that um, has just completely retarded the, the planet and its creatures and um, all life forms. And um, the, the underlying causes of all these problems, again, the system of white supremacy. So it, it would be a super um, constructive if you could get this person on the, the broadcast uh, one day because um, it was, I think it would be a constructive conversation to have down the line again. She's already been invited, was invited at the beginning of the year. In spite of all of the terrorism of this year, Gus has generally been on his job. We'll try again, though. Uh, let's see. Any other folks? Thoughts, observations to share? Grant there. Still processing. Make sure I didn't miss anything important from the second chapter. I think the blaming that is accurate because I think most of the time, at least that I have heard in my limited capacity, people speaking about infertility and uh, whom is to blame in terms of a couple if they're trying to produce offspring and then they're not able to do so. Generally, I think I would hear it be a female thing that there might be something wrong with the female. Let's get her checked out. Not. Ooh. Maybe this guy's been watching too much TV or hanging out in the hot tub or drinking too much alcohol, or smoking too many cigarettes, all of the other like I generally don't hear that at all. So, yeah, that's one I definitely all still learning. We should have a lot more information about the reproductive process and making sure that we are healthy. If it's our time, we choose to participate in all of that. Um, The, the study as well because she gave so much detail about the study of sperm and the modality and how much volume of the sperm needs to be in quality shape in terms of having so-called healthy high quality sperm and how that's diminished so much over the last few decades or so and then even getting into why uh, that might be super detailed I guess that would be one gripe I have about the book at least the copy that I have the footnotes are not within the body of the text now I'm sure there uh, is a note section you look at the thing uh, okay yeah there's a resource section uh, a glossary uh, bibliography index all that but I generally prefer especially for a scientific book like this footnotes within the body of the text that way I could go like some of the, the TV experiment that she was talking about and some of the other studies bam can go and, and check that immediately and then share with you all but you know Hopefully she has a detailed bibliography section in the back, so this won't be uh, an issue. Uh, anything else folks need to share or we can shove off to the second audio segment? Grand. We will get to audio segment two. Uh, if you 
had additional thoughts, questions, observations, just jot them down so you don't forget. Uh, and we should have ample time to share once we wrap up the second audio segment. So we're uh, in chapter two, uh, context of white supremacy. This is Shauna Swan, PhD. I suspect she's a white woman. Her book, Count Down, we're picking up in the subtitle, Down for the Count. Down for the count. Given the declines in sperm counts and other measures of sperm quality in Western countries, men's share of infertility cases may be on the rise. A recent study involving patients presenting for care at infertility centers in New Jersey and Spain found that the proportion of men with total modal sperm counts greater than 15 million per millilambert had declined approximately 10% between 2002 and 2017, which suggests a notable drop in sperm counts even among subfertile men. An unfortunate form of double jeopardy the implication is that subfertile men may be becoming even more subfertile. The ratio of intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI procedures, which involve injecting live sperm directly into a human egg, to all IVF procedures has been increasing in many countries. This could suggest that male factor infertility is increasing, according to Danish researcher and clinician Neil Skakebeck. The use of ICSI, available since 1991, has more than doubled from 1996 to 2012 among fresh IVF cycles in the United States. One of the major gifts ICSI has provided is that it has brought male factor infertility out of hiding and allowed it to be treated as a medical problem rather than a manhood issue. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization's reference value for the lowest sperm concentration that's compatible with fertility, meaning it takes less than a year for a man and his partner to achieve a pregnancy, has declined over the last 30 years. Clinicians tend to use this number as a cutoff when deciding whether to send a man for a complete fertility workup. The point is, our idea of what's a good enough sperm concentration has actually gone down. It used to be 40 million per millilampert, then it was lowered by the WHO to 20 million per millilampert in 1980, and to 15 million per millilampert in 2010. For the sake of comparison, back in the 1940s, 60 million per millilampert was considered an adequate sperm count. These changes can have unintended consequences. On the upside, this lower cutoff eases the burden on fertility clinics and might make men with relatively low sperm concentrations, by previous standards, feel better. But it doesn't do them any favors in terms of their fecundity. And if men are told their sperm concentrations are fine, they're more likely to wait until they're older to try to impregnate their female partners, and their older age could make it even harder for them to achieve a pregnancy. While it's not widely acknowledged, women aren't the only ones to undergo an age-related decline in fertility. Several sperm parameters decline with advancing age, with the most marked changes being a loss of volume of sperm, a decrease in motility, and an increase in DNA fragmentation, the presence of abnormal genetic material within the sperm. Basically, 
Declines in sperm quality and quantity make every aspect of fertility harder as men get older. In recent years, the WHO has made similar reductions in the reference values for sperm motility, volume, vitality, and morphology. All of these factors are correlated with fertility. If a man has a low sperm count, he's more likely to have sperm that don't swim well or have the right shape. And keep in mind that, even in a best-case scenario, with a healthy adult man who has tens of millions of sperm per ejaculate, very few, perhaps only one in a million, will succeed in connecting with the egg. Still, every little drop in sperm quantity or quality potentially reduces the chance of conceiving a pregnancy. As the song Every Sperm is Sacred from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life goes, Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is great. A Cluster of Unfortunate Events A hidden player in the men's infertility picture that often goes unrecognized, low testosterone. As previously mentioned, testosterone levels have been declining by 1% per year since 1982, according to research from the United States and several European countries. In the male fertility foiling equation, this makes sense, since adequate testosterone is needed to produce healthy sperm, and many of the factors that can lower sperm count can affect male hormone levels, too. They're parallel manifestations of a common source of disruption. Given this testosterone decline, it's not surprising that the use of testosterone replacement therapy has increased fourfold among men between the ages of 18 and 45, and threefold among older men in the past 10 years. After all, many men are aware that low testosterone levels can set the stage for muscle loss, increased abdominal fat, weakened bones, and memory, mood, and energy problems, symptoms many men desperately want to avoid. However, many don't realize that low testosterone often correlates with a lower sperm count. Here's the surprising, counterintuitive fact of life. Testosterone replacement therapy comes with its own downsides, including, wait for it, lowered sperm count. Here's how this happens. When a man wears a testosterone patch or applies a testosterone gel, the hormone enters his bloodstream and his testosterone levels go up. Sounds good so far, right? But his brain interprets this rise as a sign that there's plenty of testosterone, so it sends signals to the testes to stop making more. This, in turn, causes a decline in sperm production. The result can lead to something of a vicious cycle, in which men with low testosterone and low sperm quality opt for testosterone treatment and end up with even lower sperm quality. In fact, testosterone replacement therapy has been studied as a method of birth control because 90% of men can have their sperm counts drop to zero while they're on it. When bad habits go up, guess what doesn't? Adding to these sexual frustrations, Increasing numbers of younger men are grappling with a problem that's long been thought to be an older man's affliction, erectile dysfunction, ED. Believe it or not, 26% of men who present with some degree of ED are now under age 40. 
In a study that evaluated nearly 800 men seeking help for the first time for erectile dysfunction, researchers found that the average age at which men sought medical attention for not being up to the task dropped by seven years between 2005 and 2017. Whether it's due to unhealthy lifestyle factors such as smoking, heavy drinking or drug use, higher rates of anxiety, or an increase in porn consumption, which can deplete dopamine reserves due to overstimulation, the result can be the same, trouble getting or keeping an erection during real-life sexual intercourse. In addition, preliminary evidence suggests that exposure to certain environmental agents, such as pesticides and solvents, as well as arsenic in well water, can compromise erectile function. Add these to the list of sexual hazards in the modern world. Hard Truths, Painful Emotions Despite the fact that the decline in sperm counts presents a formidable threat to men and couples alike, there's often a reluctance to accept this reality, even when men and women are aware of it. In other words, there's often a disconnect between knowing a problem exists and being willing to accept it. For example, Research suggests that in many countries, male infertility remains a hidden, highly stigmatized problem, laden with feelings of inadequacy, and often spoken of derogatorily, as in shooting blanks, and it leads to feelings of emasculation, notes Marcia C. Inhorn, Ph.D., a professor of anthropology and international affairs at Yale University. This isn't entirely surprising, since historically a man's virility has been considered an integral part of his sense of masculinity. But many people have absolutely no idea that male infertility is something different from male impotency, she adds. For 30 years, Dr. Inhorn has conducted research on male infertility in the Middle East. In this part of the world, certain genetic sperm defects and male factor infertility problems are common and often run in families. Yet, even when their husbands are discovered to be the infertile ones, women are often blamed for the infertility, and sometimes women try to help their infertile husbands save face by claiming the infertility problem as their own, Dr. Inhorn notes. It's often done out of love. They do it because they don't want their male partners to be humiliated. Granted, it's often hard for men to come to terms with the reality that they aren't as virile as they presumed they were, even when they're presented with evidence that this is the case. In one study, researchers from the UK asked men experiencing infertility to share their thoughts and feelings about what they were going through. All characterized their desire to procreate as a taken-for-granted expectation and part of being human, so merely seeking help for fertility issues was viewed as a sign of weakness and caused them shame and embarrassment. After being diagnosed with infertility, subfertility, or having defective sperm, the men said such things as, you almost feel as if you're not a man, you cannot do the biological thing, and part of being a man is being able to produce children. When they tell you that you can't, that your semen's no good, it's like taking a bit of masculinity away from you. Or, I know it's my fault, and it's my problem, and my partner could have kids with somebody else. She's got the option, whereas I haven't got the option to do that.
Sharon Covington, MSW, has spent 35 years in the field of reproductive mental health, providing specialized fertility counseling to individuals and couples in the greater Washington, D.C. area. Editor of the book Fertility Counseling, Clinical Guide and Case Studies, Covington is also Director of Psychological Support Services at Shady Grove Fertility the largest fertility practice in the United States, with 32 centers throughout the country, and she routinely counsels men and women who experience emotional stress from their fertility challenges. While this type of news is difficult for either gender to accept, it comes as a real shock when a man finds out he has a low sperm count or other male factor fertility problems, Covington says. The surprise factor stems in part from the fact that men don't have regular wellness visits to check their reproductive function or prenatal fertility checks. Only when they have trouble getting their female partner pregnant do men find out they may have a fertility problem. Often, women who are faced with fertility challenges seek immediate support, whereas men are more likely to keep the disappointing news to themselves. Among men, it's not the kind of thing they'd ever share in a locker room or with a buddy over beer, Covington says. It becomes a very private, isolating experience. Not surprisingly, men's lack of openness about their infertility is a risk factor for experiencing depressive symptoms. Nor does it help that men with fertility problems have a significantly lower quality sex life compared to male partners who don't have problems with fertility as one study found. When researchers from Montreal examined the content of online discussion boards for men with fertility problems, they discovered that various types of social support, including emotional and informational support, were both sought and provided by those writing on these boards. When the cause of childlessness was male factor infertility, men wrote such things as, I'm really disappointed and I have a feeling my wife holds me responsible for it. One guy wrote, What I hate most are the thoughts I can't help about what people think when they talk to me. Is it pity? I'm so conflicted because I know I'd feel the same way as those people if the tables were turned. Hazards of Playing the Waiting Game Complicating the rising challenges to male fertility Many couples in Western countries are now waiting until their 30s to start a family. So they may not discover that one or both of them have fertility problems until they have only a narrow window of opportunity to take advantage of assisted reproductive technology, ART, such as in vitro fertilization, IVF. Since there aren't any treatments for improving sperm production in subfertile men, the only effective option is for the couple to undergo ART, which is not only expensive, but also invasive for the woman. Ready for a shocker? Male factor infertility is the only medical situation that's treated by administering a painful procedure to a woman because of a problem that afflicts her male partner. Another potential glitch. A compelling body of research shows that as men age, particularly as they reach the north side of 40, their sperm is more susceptible to mutation, which can increase the risk that their children will be born with disorders such as autism and schizophrenia or Down syndrome. A man's age also can affect his female partner's miscarriage risk.
Studies suggest that for men ages 40 and older, their partner has a 60% increased risk of experiencing miscarriage compared to fathers under 30. The risk appears to be stronger for first trimester pregnancy losses, which are more likely to be chromosomally abnormal. That's right. A pregnant woman is more likely to miscarry when her partner's sperm is faulty, but neither partner may realize this. Sadly, there's no easy solution to the problem of aging sperm when it comes to the prospect of achieving and sustaining a pregnancy. Assisted reproductive technology may seem close, but it's not a panacea. In recent years, fears about declining sperm counts and concerns about the lack of preventive screening for male factor infertility have spawned the development of several at-home sperm tests that allow a man to collect a semen sample, place it in a special sperm spinning device, and get a reading of his sperm count, right in the privacy of his own home. But because they're so new, the accuracy and reliability of these home sperm count tests have yet to be determined, and they don't assess other factors, such as motility or morphology. Meanwhile, sperm cryobanking services, such as Legacy, are now making it possible for younger men to bank their potent sperm for the future in case they want to have children down the road, just as egg freezing services allow women to do their part. Contrary to public perception, fertility challenges are an equal opportunity problem between the sexes, not just a woman's issue. And the declines in sperm count and quality that are occurring in the modern world aren't helping matters. It really does take two to tango, or foxtrot, or produce a viable pregnancy and healthy offspring. The difference is, just because a man doesn't hear his biological clock ticking, doesn't mean it isn't marking time. 3. It takes two to tango. Her side of the story. Reproductive wrongs. When Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, was first published in 1985, people responded primarily to its disturbing depiction of women living in what might be described as a feminist's nightmare, a world in which women are under strict patriarchal and social control, forbidden from having jobs or money of their own, and assigned to various classes, from chaste, childless wives, to housekeepers, to reproductive handmaids, whose purpose is to become impregnated by the men whose homes they inhabit, so they can then hand over their babies to the men's morally fit wives. At the time, no one thought the portrayal of catastrophic declines in birth rates could be linked to toxic chemicals in the air and water. Somehow, that seemed like dramatic license on the author's part. But now the novel and the series it engendered seem disturbingly prophetic. Along with the precipitous drop that has occurred in sperm counts and fertility rates in Western countries, the rate of gestational surrogacy, a consensual version of the scenario described in The Handmaid's Tale, has steadily been increasing, about 1% per year between 1999 and 2013. This trend reflects a downturn in fertility. While the dramatic decline in sperm counts is an important factor in the fertility slump that's being seen in many parts of the world, changes in women's reproductive function are also occurring. 
and many have links to the same lifestyle and environmental culprits that are affecting men's reproductive status. Before I get to those, some facts are in order to illustrate the big picture. Worldwide fertility dropped by 50% between 1960 and 2015, and in some countries, the decline has been even steeper. For example, between 1901 and 2014, the total fertility rate in Denmark dropped from 4.1 children per woman to 1.8 children per woman. At first glance, it's easy to attribute the decline to social trends, such as women choosing to have their first pregnancy at older ages, and couples' desire for smaller families. Those things undoubtedly contribute to the shift, but it's not that simple, because fertility declined at all ages during this same time period. And surprisingly, the decline in the ability to conceive a pregnancy and carry it to term what's called impaired fecundity, was actually more dramatic in younger women. And here's the real shocker. In the first decade of the 20th century, women over age 30 in Denmark had higher fertility rates than women under 30 had between 1949 and 2014. Looked at another way, the average 20-something Danish woman today is less fertile than her grandmother was at 35, no bueno. The picture is almost as bleak in the United States, with total births per woman dropping by more than 50% between 1960 and 2016. It isn't clear how much of this baby scarcity stems from economic, educational, sociological, or environmental factors, but this much is undeniable. In 2017, the total birth rate for women in the United States was 16% below what is considered necessary for our population to replace itself over time. That's obviously cause for concern. This was true in 2017, and it's still true in the time of COVID-19. To borrow a phrase from William Shakespeare, these trends suggest that something is rotten, or at least troublesome, in the state of Denmark, the United States, and elsewhere. Indeed, there's compelling evidence that diminished ovarian reserve, DOR, a condition in which the number and quality of a woman's eggs is lower than expected for her biological age, is occurring more frequently than in previous generations, and that the risk of miscarriage, pregnancy loss before 20 weeks gestation, has been rising among women of all ages. While the recent increase in reproductive challenges among women may not be quite as dramatic as those in men, we may not be getting the full story of what's going on. For one thing, there are more studies on men's reproductive functionality, partly because, well, more medical studies are conducted on men, period. Yes, there's a gender gap when it comes to medical research, as well as in pay equity, employment opportunities, dry-cleaning fees, and other elements in our modern world. As far as research on reproductive health goes, there may be an element of practicality at work here. Men's genitals are on full display, and a sperm sample can be obtained from an ejaculation that's provided by a man without too much effort or trouble. With women, by contrast, no fluid offering can reveal her reproductive potential or limitations. In women, 
The inner workings of reproductive capacity are more complicated and are hidden from view. For example, there's no easy way to count the number of eggs a woman has in reserve. And even if she has plenty of eggs remaining and she ovulates regularly, a woman has no way of knowing if her fallopian tubes are blocked, if her uterus is hospitable to a fertilized egg, or if the right hormones will be released in the right amounts at the right times to provide a safe haven for an embryo until she tries to get pregnant. So gauging a seemingly healthy woman's baby-making prospects is a trickier proposition than gauging a man's. Don't know much about biology. Despite the fact that the female body is a baby's first home, many women know less than one might expect about the ins and outs of reproductive health. This isn't just an educational problem. It has real, practical implications for reproductive success. Study after study has found that fertility awareness among women is shockingly low. On average, women answer correctly 50% of questions about the causes and prevalence of infertility. Medical students fare only slightly better, typically earning a D instead of an F. In one study involving a thousand women between the ages of 18 and 40 in the United States, 40% of participants expressed concerns about their ability to conceive, but one-third were unaware of the adverse effects that sexually transmitted infections, obesity, or irregular periods could have on their ability to procreate. Even more startling, 40% were unfamiliar with the ovulatory phase of their menstrual cycles, which is the only time fertilization can occur. Given the confusion about ovulation, Here's a brief refresher. Ovulation occurs around day 14 in a 28-day menstrual cycle, day one is the first day of a woman's period, when a surge in luteinizing hormone, LH, causes one of the woman's ovaries to release a mature egg. Though the average cycle is 28 days long, anything between 21 and 45 days is considered normal and normal periods last two to eight days. To identify when she's on the verge of ovulating, a woman contracts several things. First, changes in her cervical mucus. It becomes thin, clear, and slippery like egg white right before ovulation. Or she can monitor her basal body temperature, first thing in the morning before getting out of bed, because it will rise about half a degree when ovulation occurs. Or she can use an ovulation predictor kit, which forecasts ovulation 12 to 24 hours in advance, after she pees on a stick. Note that these techniques are far from foolproof as contraceptive methods. They're more useful for a couple trying to conceive. After the egg is released, it slowly travels down the closest fallopian tube toward the uterus, whose lining has been prepared for the possibility of pregnancy thanks to increasing levels of the hormone progesterone. If healthy sperm have swum upstream from the vagina through the cervix and into the fallopian tube, one can complete its mission and fertilize the egg there. Amazingly, after sexual intercourse, sperm can stay alive in a woman's reproductive tract for at least five days, especially if they're protected by fertile cervical mucus which means a couple doesn't need to have unprotected sex on the exact day that a woman ovulates in order to get pregnant, 
there's a window of opportunity of approximately three days leading up to ovulation. Once it's fertilized, the egg travels into the uterus, and if everything goes right, implantation will occur in the lining of the uterus. If it doesn't, the unfertilized egg will pass out of the woman's body during her period. Those are the basic facts of a woman's reproductive function, and they haven't changed with the passage of time. But recent decades have seen some baffling shifts in female reproductive development, health, and fertility. Among others, there has been a downturn in sex drive among men and women of all ages, as previously mentioned. Low sexual desire is the most common sexual problem among women at midlife, affecting 69% of women over age 40, according to one study. In an unfortunate double whammy, among postmenopausal women, low libido is often tied to erectile dysfunction in their male partner. Whether these sex drive nosedives stem from stress, medication use, chemical exposures, or other factors, there's no denying that they're a bummer in the bedroom. An Accelerated Timetable In an unanticipated turn of events, in some parts of the world, including the United States, girls are maturing earlier and experiencing what's called early puberty. That is to say, they experience earlier breast development and start of menstruation, sometimes before age eight. The alarm first sounded on this issue back in 1997, when a study showed that by age seven, 27% of African-American girls and 7% of white girls were showing signs of breast and or pubic hair development. The researchers found that on average, African-American girls were beginning puberty between the ages of eight and nine, and white girls by age 10 six months to a year earlier than girls in previous studies. In 2006, girls in Denmark had developed glandular breast tissue, the hallmark sign of puberty, a full year earlier than girls born in the same region in 1991. Similarly, the age at which girls began getting their first period also decreased. In the Danish study, it was three and a half months earlier in girls than in their mothers. In Japan, the onset of menstruation shifted from 13.8 years for girls born in the 1930s to 12.8 years for those born in the 1950s to 12.2 years for those born in the 1970s and 1980s. These may not sound like dramatic differences, but to the girls experiencing them, they're significant. Not many girls in elementary school are thrilled by the prospect of having to carry tampons or menstrual pads in their cartoon-themed backpacks. Girls who go through early puberty may have mood swings before their peers do, and that can lead to social isolation, depressive symptoms, and use of illicit substances such as alcohol or recreational drugs. And because these girls often look older than they are, Sexual attention may be directed toward them before they're emotionally ready to handle it, all of which can lead to a premature loss of innocence. The extent to which these precocious shifts bother girls varies considerably, but being ahead of the pubertal curve is often uncomfortable, as Kate remembers all too well. After developing breasts at age nine and getting her first period at ten, 
Kate experienced relentless teasing from boys at school, who often called her Brenda Starr or a brick house, referring to her well-endowed, voluptuous figure. I definitely got more attention from boys. Some of it was appreciated because I was fairly boy-crazy, but some of it was not, especially the pinching and name-calling, recalls Kate, now 45, whose daughter also went through puberty early. For me, the worst part was that I gained 10 pounds in a summer when I was 10, and my mood swings were off the charts. The only upside, as far as Kate was concerned, was that she became something of a menstrual mentor to friends who got their periods and started wearing bras after she did and sought her advice. As challenging as early puberty can seem while a girl is going through it, there are often enduring ripple effects, such as higher levels of psychological distress and body image problems as an adult. There are also potential long-term implications for a woman's physical health. Most notably, an earlier age at the onset of menstruation has been linked to an increased risk of breast and endometrial cancers because the risk of those cancers increases with the number of menstrual cycles a woman has throughout her life. Female Trouble in the Fertility Department Other worrisome shifts are occurring in the reproductive realm for women. After spending years or even decades trying not to get pregnant, a woman who wants to have a baby might assume she'll get pregnant quickly with well-timed, unprotected sex. But it doesn't work out that way for everyone, especially these days. The truth is, human reproduction is highly inefficient, especially compared to that of the majority of mammalian species. During a given menstrual cycle, people have, at best, depending on their age, an approximately 30% probability of conception with well-timed, unprotected sex. To be fertile, a woman needs to have functioning ovaries, a reserve of healthy eggs, healthy fallopian tubes, and a healthy uterus. Any medical condition that affects these organs can contribute to female infertility. One such condition is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, a hormonal and metabolic disorder. It's characterized by irregular periods, excess facial or body hair, acne, weight gain, and multiple cysts on the ovaries. Fallopian tube obstructions or scarring also can occur with PCOS. Another medical problem that impacts fertility is endometriosis, an often painful disorder in which tissue that normally lines the uterus gets displaced and grows outside the uterus. Fibroids, benign growths of muscle and fibrous tissue that develop in the uterus, can also decrease the chance that a woman conceives. And there are signs that all these reproductive disorders are increasing. For example, a retrospective study of nearly 7,000 women in Canada found more than a threefold increase between 1996 and 2008 in the number of women between the ages of 18 and 24 who were newly diagnosed with endometriosis. At first blush, it's difficult to tell whether this diagnostic swell is because these conditions are occurring more frequently or if doctors have simply become better at recognizing the symptoms and making the correct call. I suspect it's a bit of both. Astonishingly, 
Isabel, 32, a school social worker in New York City, didn't find out until she'd been trying to get pregnant for a year, without success, that she had stage 4 endometriosis, the most severe form. Not until she had a CT scan and exploratory surgery to investigate why she was having trouble getting pregnant was her endometriosis discovered. During the procedure, surgeons removed as much of the misplaced endometrial tissue as they could find and removed her damaged fallopian tubes. After that, Isabel was able to get pregnant through IVF and now has a two-year-old son. She continues to wonder how or why she got endometriosis, because no one else in her family has had it. I work with ten other women who've recently gone through fertility treatment, and we often talk about what's going on in our environment that's causing so many fertility problems, she says. Maybe there's something in the water or in our food. Who knows? In this day and age, I feel like nothing is healthy anymore. Dashed Expectations Of all the potential fertility foilers, ovulation disorders are responsible for the largest proportion of female causes of infertility, with advancing age playing a primary role. Amazingly enough, a female is born with all the eggs she will ever have, approximately 1 million to 2 million, which is far more than she will ever need. By the time she reaches puberty, approximately 300,000 eggs will remain, all but one of which are quiescent and idle during any given month. Usually, only one egg is released during ovulation, but some fertility drugs stimulate the ovary to release more than one egg, which is why fertility drugs often lead to multiple births. As the decades pass, the number of eggs a woman has in storage dwindles steadily to an average of 25,000 at age 37, then hits an even more dramatic slide, down to 1,000 at age 51, the average age of menopause in the United States. As with sperm, it's not just a numbers game, however. In addition to this age-related decline in the quantity of eggs a woman has, there's also a substantial decrease in the quality of healthy, viable eggs in her body as she approaches 40. It has always been difficult for women to get pregnant as they get older. But this didn't used to be as much of a problem because women had babies at younger ages. Now they are increasingly delaying having children. And though that may well be a good thing from a social perspective, it isn't from a reproductive one. It's ironic that when it's biologically easiest for a woman to get pregnant and give birth, many women aren't yet thinking about having a child. Unfortunately, Mother Nature hasn't kept up with women's shifting desires in the baby-making department and extended our reproductive lifespans accordingly. Admittedly, there are substantial variations in the rate at which a woman's eggs die off or sustain their quality, based on genetic, environmental, and lifestyle factors. It's not just a linear effect as her birthdays pass. That's always been true, but new actors on the environmental stage and in the lifestyle arena may be impacting these rates. I'll get to that soon. First, it's interesting to note that while the average age of menopause is not decreasing, there's evidence that diminished ovarian reserve, DOR, is occurring more frequently than in previous generations. 
The prevalence of DOR increased from 19% to 26% between 2004 and 2011 among women seeking assisted reproductive technology, ART, treatment in the United States. That's a 37% increase in just seven years. While it is possible for a woman with DOR to conceive naturally, it's much more difficult, and many women don't discover they have diminished ovarian reserve until they have difficulty conceiving. Sometimes this kind of trouble feels as if it comes out of left field. For example, by the time she turned 31, Alyssa, a trim lawyer who often runs 10Ks, had given birth to two healthy boys three years apart. When she was 34, she and her husband decided they wanted to have a third child and expected it to happen as easily as it had with the first two. It didn't. After trying to get pregnant for nine months, Alyssa went for a fertility evaluation and was told that she had old eggs. In simple terms, her eggs had aged prematurely, and the quality of her remaining eggs was relatively poor, considering her biological age. Realizing she was fortunate to have two children already, Alyssa tried to joke about her rotten eggs, but she says, Inside, I felt broken. She couldn't understand why this had happened to her. To improve their chances, the couple opted to undergo in vitro fertilization, and after two unsuccessful IVF cycles, the third IVF cycle resulted in Alyssa's getting pregnant. Unfortunately, when Alyssa had a miscarriage 11 weeks into the pregnancy, she began wondering what she might have done to jeopardize the pregnancy. That's not uncommon, says Alice Domar, Ph.D., chief psychologist at Boston IVF at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and author of Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom. After a miscarriage, it's not unusual for women to retrace their recent histories to try to pinpoint what went wrong. People need to find a reason. It's hard for them to have something terrible happen to them randomly, Dr. Domar says, but miscarriages rarely occur because of something a woman did. More often than not, miscarriages are tied to chromosomal abnormalities. And that will wrap us for this week. Uh, we'll pick up <clears throat> next week. Uh, we'll be in Chapter 3. We didn't finish all of Chapter 3, but we'll wrap that up next week and uh, keep on pushing. Again, this book is not very long. Context of white supremacy, the number to dial, 720 716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, I will finish up the email from one of our investors uh, said he got to chapter 2 uh, finish up his notes and then we'll hit the phone line uh, let's see number two given the testosterone decline among men between the ages of 18 and 45 low testosterone is also talked about with elderly men leading to weight gain heart disease and stroke number three increased porn consumption can lead to fertility problems as well uh, trouble getting or keeping an erection 
this does not seem surprise that surprising at all. Uh, we had a program, I think, back in 2010. Uh, we spoke with a white woman who had talked a lot about uh, sexual intercourse uh, and uh, Alfred Kinsey. A lot of his research on sexual activity and what have you and encouraging all of this, you know, different type sexual deviance and anti-sex and all the rest of it, uh, that pornography, the increased consumption of pornography and how that also can lead to lower sex drives and all the rest of it create really unhe unhealthy expectations and thoughts uh, about the whole process of sexual intercourse. Uh, number four for sexual activity complicating the rising challenges to male fertility many couples in western countries are now waiting until their 30s to start a family I recall Dr. Welsing recommending that non-white victims black couples delay child rearing and have no more than two children minimum four years apart moreover she thought that black couples should expect the need to support said children to a significant degree until age 35 all due to the global system of racism white supremacy yep she was very specific about that on a regular uh, basis uh, that which kind of hits that conundrum she was talking about in the book uh, you would have uh, generally speaking you're more fertile when you're younger uh, but waiting that could you know have other complications I would think maybe even system of white supremacy with all that stress and everything else I don't know but I have uh, I do remember talking to uh, black moms and them saying that in their observation their general experience it seemed to be more of a white woman thing having lots of these difficulties uh, conceiving once you are closer to 40 I remember we had a number of black moms cows listeners saying hey I have known a number of black moms they have had no problem producing children close to 40 41 whatever the case I know in my prenatal uh, training our instructor emphasized all the time like unless you have some sort of health problems it shouldn't be a problem conceiving uh, at 40 if you're healthy you take care of yourself and all the rest of it although in the system of white supremacy it's kind of designed for black people in particular non-white people to not get to 40 and be healthy not even get to 30 and be healthy not get to 20 and be healthy so uh, number again 720-716-7300 decode 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, folks who dialed in if you have questions observations second portion of the reading or anything that you forgot to share from the first portion uh, feel free can I be heard retired firefighter in Florida yes sir Yes, uh, greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, I uh, came in a little bit late uh, on the uh, first first reading. Uh, I came in at the time where the uh, the uh, reader was describing the uh, the uh, male sperm uh, science. Uh, 
but uh, with the rest of the reading from the first period and the second reading, uh, it seems to be like a instructional book for white people in general. Uh, white people have all under a global system of racism, white supremacy, uh, have always been concerned about uh, been concerned about the uh, sexuality, the sexuality as far as producing uh, people uh, out of uh, people that they identify as non-white. They always realize that they have a problem. Uh, and it's primarily a political one because, you know, before they made this whole thing up called racism, <laughs> there, were, there was no distinction between people in the way that we that we have been forced to have to uh, uh, understand. Uh, but uh, uh, I think I think they rely more upon their means of codifying on what it means to be a white person. That's probably more more concise and that, that they're more good at as opposed to producing themselves. Uh, they've always had a problem with producing themselves, and uh, I would I would suspect that this white female, if it is a white female who who uh, uh, wrote this book, is basically is giving tips on how to uh, improve that. Uh, at first, I thought it was more or less a white female feminist means by saying, oh, it's not necessarily the woman's fault, it's the male's fault. And basically, shes I think she's talking about white people, period. Uh, of course, we're using the terms Western. That's a code for white. And Danish, that's definitely white as far as that concern. Uh, and uh, uh, there... They're, they're 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 more, and I'm probably repeating myself. They're they're more concerned. They're more good at their code than they are at reproducing themselves. Is what is what basically what she is, what I get out of the whole uh, book so far. Which I think that would be accurate if that is what she's saying. Uh, that they rely upon their. She's not saying they rely upon their code, but that's that's what I get out of it. They rely upon their their codification as white people more so than reproduction, and that's that's what I my thoughts. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Um, definitely, I think that was a pretty strong tone in the at least the portion that we read for this week, uh, and talking about a lot of times how white women end up being blamed if there's a problem and a couple can't conceive and that type of thing. Even though she didn't say white women, that's what I think, uh, and how males are part of uh, the infertility issue uh, as well. But yeah, that was definitely a major theme. Uh, it would be interesting. We talked about that with the last book in terms of who are they who was Shaft written for, who was this book written for as well. Something to uh, consider, even though I feel pretty confident saying, I think this was for sure written for white people. Uh, let's, see. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, commentary to share. Uh, 
Can I be heard? Our caller in California. Yes, sir. Um, I think it's very uh, telling and uh, the, the fact that um, when she's discussing the the prematurity, um, I mean, the, the, the accelerated maturity that's happening uh, amongst um, females who are white and um, non-white, particularly black, that it's, uh, it's affecting um, black females more. And I, I just think that's a, um, a testament to the fact that no matter what is afflicting white people, no matter what they're suffering from, it's always going to be affecting um, non-white people, especially black people at, at greater rates. And that's very, very, very um, telling of how the system has been designed. Even the um, negative results of the system, even though it's affecting white people, uh, as she's claiming, it's always affecting um, black people more. And um, yeah, that's race and white supremacy 101, I think. And I'll be my line. Much obliged to color in California. Uh, I would be interested in seeing some of the, like she was talking about some of the information in different parts of the world, Africa, what the fertility rates are there and what have you, because they didn't have information. I'd be very curious uh, to see, you know, what that data says, even from Brazil, you know, other places to see what does this look like? You see in the same trend with black people, non-white people all over the world. Uh, I know that's definitely they've been talking a lot about that in China because they had that uh, one child policy and all the rest of it. So now they've ran into some major problems. So, yeah, I would definitely be curious. Uh, do we have any other folks commentary to get in? Grand. I'll see. Check some of my notes. So we read the second audio portion was a little bit of chapter two and then a little bit of chapter three. Uh, let's see. Uh, she talked about still learning. Uh, she talked about how I guess many people do not know about risk factors for making sure that you're fertile as fertile as can be to conceive a child. She said a 2016 Canadian study found that while most of the 701 participating men considered themselves to be at least somewhat knowledgeable about male reproduction and fertility, many were unable to identify risk factors such as obesity, diabetes, alcohol consumption, and high cholesterol that are associated with male infertility. I feel like with black people, these four, many other of the problems that she's talked about in the book, but I mean, man, racists go to work on these four with black people this part of the world worldwide really but especially this part of the world like obesity get them to that mcdonald's get them all kinds of bad food and sugary concoctions and sodas and all the rest of it get them some alcohol I already talked about that and bars and malt liquor and everything else high cholesterol what you eat make sure you're eating bad foods you're not gonna have avocados black seeds so you can get quality good cholesterol no 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 no, no. Popeye's fried chicken, KFC, all the rest of it. Diabetes, that's right back there. Same thing. Uh, no exercise, eating bad food, not drinking water, sugary beverages. Same thing. And then you can throw cigarettes in there too. Let's see. She mentioned Woody uh, Allen during the first portion of the audio. Second portion of the audio, she mentioned, mentioned Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Again, just the 
culture of racism, white supremacy, Monty Python was mentioned in Woody Allen's book. Uh, let's see. Whew. Escalation, how this is uh, impacting younger people. She said, believe it or not, 26% of men who present with some degree of erectile dysfunction are now under age 40 in a study that evaluated nearly 800 men seeking help for the first time for erectile dysfunction researchers found that the average age at which men sought medical attention for not being up to the task dropped by 11 or by seven years between 2005 and 2017 again just all of the toxicity of this environment and that's something that's not talked about even when I said before when she talked about does TV viewing impact all of this not discussed and I would suspect probably has a pretty substantial impact on black people who are generally put in really unhealthy conditions from conception forward conception to death really uh, let's see and then she talks the paragraph right beneath all that all this erectile dysfunction she says in addition preliminary evidence suggests that exposure to certain environmental agents such as pesticides and solvents as well as arsenic in well water can compromise erectile function now just what I said the places where they stuff black people at remember from medical apart or excuse me not medical apartheid uh, a terrible thing to waste Harriet A. Washington when she talked about that let's dump the black people in these areas where we know we got all these poisons in the soil and in the air and how that's going to impact the potential moms potential dads and the children uh, let's see. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, she always talks about uh, the penis uh, being a reference for a gun. She has all those diagrams and everything else in the ISIS papers with her theory, son of a gun, the great equalizer. Uh, she talks about with fertility. Swan says, for example, research suggests that in many countries, male infertility remains a hidden, highly stigmatized problem laden with feelings of inadequacy and often spoken of derogatorily as in shooting blanks and it leads to feelings of emasculation I just read that report Senator uh, was it Housley saying that man there's an attack on Howley's there's an attack on masculinity I just said that uh, and then uh, shooting blanks the metaphor everything is about a gun my gun doesn't work oh my gosh what are we gonna do my gun is shooting blanks I don't have any bullets that's the way we conceive of everything guns and violence uh, let's see oh and the, the great equalizer she's talking to some of these males after being diagnosed with infertility subfertility or having defective sperm the men said such things as you almost feel as if you're not a man you cannot do the biological thing great equalizer again not working in my opinion getting right at the core of white genetic annihilation why we gotta ask what size is his penis and how big is his penis and all the rest of it uh, let's see now within all of this we talked about alcohol consumption and smoking and all these unhealthy habits Often women who are faced with fertility challenges seek immediate support, whereas men are more likely to keep the disappointing news to themselves. Among men, it's not the kind of thing they'd share in a locker room or with a buddy over a beer. Here we go again with the alcohol consumption. I thought that was part of the problem. That's just such an integral part of white culture 
alcohol, drinking, guzzle down, you know, and not just drink one beer, drink a whole keg. Uh, let's see. Chapter three. See if I have any notes there and then we'll check one more time. Oh, now, see, she hasn't mentioned racism at all, but she starts chapter three. She says. For one thing, there are more studies on men's reproductive functionality, partly because, well, more medical studies are conducted on men, period. Yes, there's a gender gap when it comes to medical research, as well as in pay equity, employment opportunities, dry cleaning fees and other elements in our modern world. One white men that should be said every time if there's going to be some statistic like that. Uh, and there is a gap in all of these things, the system of white supremacy between non-white people and individuals classified as white. She doesn't say anything about that. It just comes back to sexism, patriarchy, more medical studies are conducted on men. And that's when she didn't say males, men, white men. I know they're not pulling in uh, <clears throat> Eric Garner to do medical studies. I know they're not pulling in Jacob Blake, Ahmad Arbery. I haven't heard any information that any of these folks was involved in some medical trials before they passed. George Floyd either. Let's see. Man, last week, this might be another small clue. So we ended Shaft, the book, last week. The reference uh, metaphor was used. A brick shithouse. I didn't even know what it meant. Had to get retired firefighter to educate me. We come back one week later, seven days. Kate experienced relentless teasing from boys at school who often called her Brenda Starr, who is a cartoon character, a uh, white woman, or a brick house. They just took the shit part out. Uh, let's see. Oh, and then we got the report about Alyssa, and she'd already had two children, 34. She's got so-called old eggs, and so now she's going to use in vitro fertilization. I wish they had photographs or at least identified the racial classification. I suspect Alyssa is a white woman. I could be totally wrong. Could be a non-white female, black female that, you know, had her two children and then wanted to come back and have another at 34 and had old eggs. Totally could be. I suspect this is a white woman. Uh, who, you know, would have access to this sort of uh, technology and would be encouraged to have more children. We even talked to black moms who've said that's never the case uh, with black moms when they're married, healthy, have a job, no type of public assistance needed, taking care of ourselves. Everybody's employed with a great job, college degree, sometimes Ph.D. It's never all right on. Have a third child. Have a fifth child. You could do it. That's wonderful. More black babies. The more black babies, the better. Eh, it's always ugh. have another black child. Oh, my gosh. What are you doing that for? Oh, no. You don't want to do that. You already got two of these ugly black babies. Gosh, don't have any more of them. System of white supremacy. Uh, anything else? Folks need to make sure they get in before we wrap up our first week of uh, Countdown by Shauna Swan, Ph.D. Yes, uh, Gus, I'll, I'll also, uh, in a humorous way, would like to like to uh, additionally add on that uh, Lionel Richie uh, 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 and the Commodore, the group that uh, was formed at Tuskegee, uh, one of their popular songs when I was in college was 
Uh, the name of it was Brick House. <laughs> a very popular song during that time uh, from the uh, musical group uh, called The Commodores. Uh, but uh, I also wanted to uh, additionally add on that uh, uh, white people's concern is for non-white people in general, which is an overwhelming number over people who identify themselves as white. Uh, and uh, in turn, uh, they... Uh, uh, basically deal effectively with the, uh, the overwhelming numbers with their, with their chemicals, with their chemicals, uh, alcohol, uh, that, that they basically shuttle out all around the world, uh, smoking materials, uh, the quote unquote legalization of marijuana, uh, the, uh, the food source that that is called fast food uh, is now circulated uh, all over the world, including in places in Asia, uh, that sort of thing, whereas there's becoming more and more of younger non-white people who are not following the healthy traditions of the elderly non-white people in certain places around the world. Uh, basically, in this part of the world, uh, we have a much more challenging uh, uh, task to uh, improve ourselves uh, because the probably the, the, the best manufacturer of unhealthy uh, uh, things, not just food itself, is right here by white, the white people right here. Uh, but uh, it's also the declining situation that's going on around the world and other places where non-white people are at uh, because white people are actually uh, scientifically in manufacturing uh, are uh, sharing their bad habits and their bad, bad food sources, if you want to call it food, uh, uh, with their victims. And uh, that plays a part in, in this uh, sexual production that uh, this white female is talking about. Thank you. Lots of bad habits uh, mentioned in the book and shared widely eating habits, TV habits, sleep habits, lifestyle habits. That was mentioned that word specifically lifestyle choices and lifestyle habits and things. Lots of non-constructive habits are modeled and incurred beer chugging and all the rest of it cigarette smoking lots of that is uh encouraged and they'll tell you to play a little Lionel Richie to uh soundtrack all of the bad habits we go out and do a little dancing and smoking cigarettes and you know everything else that has a uh, really detrimental impact not just on our health our bodies again the sound clip that we started with with Judith and Lace in her book you are what your grandparents ate. That was the whole point of her book, where she also talked about fertility rates, things that you do right now. They don't just impact your offspring. They impact your grandchildren, generational impact of these bad habits. Anywho, uh, I think we nabbed uh, all the folks.
grand. Uh, we will be here next week. Uh, this book is not long, so it might be four or five sessions and bam, out of here. We should be done before the uh, end of the year. You can be thinking of next book you would like to read. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, Neutralizing Workplace Racism. Wow, sports. This is not sports talk radio, but uh, professional sports have provided a lot of material for workplace racism towards the end of 2021 all the leagues to basketball football soccer all of them like man policy and procedure i can't say it enough even if you work as a professional athlete policy and procedure very important but that'll be tomorrow same time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific much obliged for the folks who uh, listened in live hope it was worthy of your thursday evening sobriety would be best now we say that a whole bunch of times but man especially while we're reading this book I haven't heard one constructive positive thing about alcohol consumption in the tiny bit of book we've read this week everything has been about hmm seems like there might be a correlation between alcohol consumption and infertility inability to you know conceive a child and have a healthy child low sperm count and all the rest of it sluggish sperm they called it lots of reasons preserve that brain computer sobriety would be best in addition to being sober if you're going out and about be alert to what's happening around you uh, if someone is being hostile rowdy this is not a time for verbal confrontations uh, you should be thinking that this person, male or female, could be armed. In fact, they might have an entire gang armed at the ready to kill and maim. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. Call enforcement officers as you're you know, vacating the scenes, whatever you need to do. All of that said, if you're driving, you're sober, buckled, you are not on the cell phone just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no Kyle Rittenhouse trial continues all that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping look at the reproduction of black children as a really important cosmic assignment. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.